You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 567. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 27th of April, 2023. In today's episode, a failed 747 engine drops turbine blades over a Dutch village. A crew member accuses an Air India pilot of entertaining a woman in the cockpit while in the air. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, straighten up and fly right. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 567 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He's an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 1010 wins on 92.3 FM in New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Roswell, Georgia. And joining me from his studio... In Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire. Former RAFRAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airways. It's Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff. Great to be back on the show uh, and looking forward to a good one. Only four days after St. George's Day. No idea what that is. More about that on the plane tail. Oh, good. Can't wait to hear more about it. And also joining us... From his home studio in the air capital, low and slow pilot, A&P mechanic, old airplane enthusiast, and engineer in the aerospace and defense industry. It's Nick Camacho. Hey, Captain Jeff and crew. I'm uh, glad to be back here after a uh, little bit of a sabbatical. <laughs> We're glad to have you back as well. Can't wait to catch up with you and also join us. A place to stand, a place to grow, a retired financier and aviation enthusiast spreadsheet master and our producer it's liz piper hi everybody sorry nick was distracting me with his little dancing routine there (laughs) well nick is a major distraction for sure have a good show you guys thank you liz better show yeah well a show here we go Stand by for news. All right, let's start off with uh, this from the Aviation Herald. A long tail aviation Boeing 747 400 freighter registration Victor Quebec Bravo Whiskey Tango performing flight 5504 from Maastricht. 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 
to uh, oh, got some stuff on my microphone uh, to New York. John F. Kennedy was in the initial climb out of Maastricht Runway 21 when the number one engine, it was a Pratt and Whitney 4056, outboard left hand suffered severe damage and began to distribute engine parts, flinging them just wildly. Uh, turbine blades over the village of Meersen. Uh, in the Netherlands, uh, about one to two nautical miles past the runway end. An elderly lady on the ground was hit by the debris and received minor injuries. The crew declared pan-pan, then mayday, and reported that they had lost the number one engine. The aircraft stopped the climb at flight level 100, entered a hold to dump fuel, and diverted to Liege in Belgium for a safe landing on runway 22 left about one hour after departure. A number of Cars on the ground received damage uh, as a result of this uh, engine coming apart. And uh, let's see. There we go. There's a picture on uh, on screen right now of uh, one of the blades uh, not being very nice to the roof of that car there. Um, that is epic, isn't it? Yeah, it I is. mean, I, I would have kept it there. I would have you know, <laughs> like had it in place and gone around with it for the rest of my life. <laughs> it would be a, uh, <laughs> a a conversation piece. Absolutely, um, you could you could wire it up as an aerial and make your radio work from it. I think you could probably could. You just have to put some sealant or something on the there to keep the water from coming in when it rains. Uh, let's see. I meant to share a video as well, so Liz, as Liz can continue to show the slides of some of the damage caused by the turbine blades falling down on the uh, town. And we have a, uh, a video also that uh, kind of uh, you can. It's not very clear on the video as far as like being focused. Uh, but you can hear the—I I think it's the the uh, sound of an explosion or that that uh, that engine giving way. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Boeing long tail open. Here we go. And there it is right here. So I, I'm not sure how the volume is going to work here. Let me turn it down a little bit. Okay, add to stream. A little windy there. I think that was the explosion. Engine. Yeah, they definitely need a muff. Okay, let me let me start it over again because um left. Okay. I know there's a lot of wind. Engine. Left. not facing the wind and we can actually hear what they're saying but unfortunately the the critical part was uh when the engine failure occurred yeah they're and, backing around they're gonna land okay thank you for your expert testimony and witness um <laughs> yes. at least we have a, i think something. they are probably gonna land otherwise they're gonna crash yeah got two choices right yeah um okay so uh the dutch Safety Board opened an exploratory investigation to the occurrence 
And on this happened actually on the 22nd of February in 2021. On April 19, the uh, Dutch Safety Board released their final report, concluding the probable causes of the serious incident were the investigation into this contained engine failure with the departing engine debris revealed that the turbine of the number one engine of the aeroplane had failed. All right, there you go. That's very thorough. Uh, this engine turbine failure was caused by elevated gas temperatures that existed for an extended period t- of time in the turbine of the engine causing wear and deformation of outer transition duct panels. This resulted in one outer transition duct panel coming loose and one being fractured, which subsequently caused severe damage to the turbine. Turbine, Consequently, engine debris—you know what? I'm going to just do the, the U.S. pronunciation— uh, debris, turbine parts, I'm not talking about the hat, um, exited the tailpipe of the engine and came down in the village of Mearson. The manufacturer of the engine was aware of the problem with the outer transition ducts coming loose, which is double uh, O, L-O-O-S-E, loose, like goose, since the 1980s. To prevent the failure of the outer transition ducts and turbine section, several service bulletins were issued since 1993. Also, airworthiness directives were issued to improve the reliability of the outer transition ducts and the safe working of the engine. These improvements concerned, among others, additional cooling features for the high-pressure turbine and the installation of new outer transition duct panels. The investigation revealed that the engine was equipped with those new panels. However, the engine was not modified with the additional cooling features. The lack uh, of additional cooling features were supposed to prevent a too high level of gas temperature. The installation of these cooling features, as advised by a service bulletin, was not mandatory. The operator who had been using the airplane in its fleet for three months at the time of the incident was not responsible for decisions not to embody the service bulletins of 72-462 at shop visits in 1999 and 2009. Despite this, the operator was not able to present the documented reasoning regarding the non-incorporation of this service bulletin. Anyway, so there you go. They, it looks like there was some <laughs> – they knew that there was a problem with uh, the heat there in that turbine section. And yeah. uh, they, they took uh, – And also a bit of a classic, uh, here, buy my aeroplane. You have it for three <laughs> months, but we haven't got all the paperwork. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, I think the, <laughs> the operators that had this aircraft were probably – uh, feeling a bit annoyed that whoever they bought it from uh, hadn't actually provided them with all the paperwork they needed to uh, answer these questions. They probably um, want to get rid of this thing because it's going to probably cost a yeah, crap ton exactly. of money to install those that cooling yeah. system, right? And I want uh, uh, Nick C. Uh, any idea of like would this be kind of an expensive um, retrofit or fix for the airplane? I, I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm not very familiar with big Pratt & Whitney turbines, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, probably It's an not interesting thing, these service bulletins, uh, the fact that they can be advisory, not mandatory. You know, since they obviously had this problem and they knew it was likely to occur, I'm surprised it wasn't mandatory. Um, it, it, this is one of those things I find quite difficult to understand because you know if someone realizes there's a problem with their product um shouldn't they be required to shouldn't operators be required to make them safe i don't quite understand them yeah you would think yeah it's it gets weird here in the states because um 
compliance is dependent on how you're operating the airplane. So like service bulletins, I don't think anybody is required to comply with service bulletins. If you're operating, you know, like part 135 or part 121, and a manufacturer puts out a mandatory service bulletin, then I think you're required to comply with it. But if you're operating part 91, even if a manufacturer says, this is a mandatory service bulletin, you have to comply with it. If you're operating part 91, which means not for hire, you're not actually required to comply with it. The only required compliance across the board is if the FAA creates an airworthiness directive for it. So a lot of times what will happen is the manufacturer will put out a mandatory service bulletin and say, here's an issue we ran into, here's how to solve it, you have to comply with it, and here's what could go wrong. And then they send that to the FAA, and then the FAA will put out an airworthiness directive that basically says, comply with manufacturer mandatory service bulletin such and such. Or or else. Yeah. So in other words, I don't I, I doubt you're the only one that's confused, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. We're yeah. all confused. I, I mean, I feel a bit sorry for the people on the ground because uh, I'm presuming the company, you know, recompense them for the the slight injuries and the damage. But um, other than that, you know, they get nothing. Whereas if one of these had hit the top of someone's head, <laughs> it could have cost loss of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Imagine that thing in the roof of the car entering your skull. Yeah, exactly. Would yeah. not be good. I mean, some of our listeners were so keen – uh, you know, um, aviation geeks, they're probably quite proud of having a fan blade sticking out of the top of their heads. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, not perhaps everybody. Well, I mean, it wouldn't really hurt their intelligence or, you know, because they, they have no sense <laughs> no. whatsoever. <laughs> You're disparaging our listeners. Yeah, Ooh. because they're, they're watching and listening to the show. Come on, there must be something wrong with them. Well, the ones in the chat room, I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> Badoom, bam. All right. Yeah. Um, oh wait a minute. I just found, oh this was a different different. Uh, that never mind. Just disregard that little aside or uh, yeah. Okay. Aside disregarded, sir. Thank you. Okay. Well, uh, I guess we should move on to the next item, and uh, this is from the Aviation Herald. And we did talk about this incident when it happened uh, very shortly uh, after the 3rd of February, 2022. Uh, it was an aerosucre. I remember having trouble. Uh, and it's like... Uh, Does that mean uh, flying sugar? Yeah, it means... Aer- yeah, I think flying sugar. Uh, yeah. 737-200, an older 737. Registration Hector Kilo 5192. I know it's hotel. Uh, performing a flight from Puerto Carreno to Bogota, Colombia, with five crew departed Puerto Carreno's runway seven when one of the engines showed overheat indications and lost thrust. The crew continued the takeoff, managed to climb just above the treetops, almost. Electrical power lines and houses passed the end of the runway outside of the aerodrome and returned to Puerto Carreno for a safe landing a couple of minutes later. A video that became viral here. This video right here. Let me turn the volume down on it. Uh, boom. Uh, now watch. Keep watching in the upper portion of the uh, screen there. Boom. You see a 737-200 uh, from somebody's like security camera. Uh, shows the aircraft at a low height crossing just above the wires, treetops, and roofs of houses. About 250 meters, 800 feet past the end of the runway. 
trees immediately reacted to the aircraft. <laughs> like the turbines. shower of debris that's coming down. <laughs> <I> no, <know. laughs> you're speaking, Jeff. Oh man, the trees uh, immediately reacted to the aircraft's wake turbulence, as uh, pointed out by Captain Nick. However, no actual contact between the aircraft and trees is visible in the video, leading to claims that the aircraft had hit the treetops, which dropped leaves as a result. Um, company pilots reported later that one of the engines had overheated and power was lost from the engine, which climbed out at only 50%. Can we get the 50% out there? Uh, mm-hmm. thrust available. <laughs> yes, there we go. So even they are shooting for Was it above or below 50%? There, I was right at 50%. <laughs> Just made it. Thank you, Liz. Brilliant. And, uh, let's see. So they did a, um, an investigation and, uh, on the 10th of April, uh, Columbia's Aeronautica Civil released their final report in Spanish only. And then, um, <laughs> uh, Simon kind of, uh, is, is kind he of, he loves get, having a dig at this. Yeah. Doesn't he? <laughs> Did not, uh, release the report in English as well. So anyway, uh, the report concludes the probable causes of the serious incident were, a late rotation caused by extreme conditions of aircraft weight and density altitude that did not permit the aircraft to achieve a sufficient climb rate, climb angle, and altitude to clear the obstacles in the takeoff trajectory. A takeoff with more aircraft weight than permitted by performance calculations. In other words, they were overweight. This weight, together with the density altitude, caused the aircraft to cover a longer takeoff roll distance, consequently reducing the safety margin to avoid obstacles on the takeoff trajectory, causing the aircraft to collide with a natural obstacle tree immediately after takeoff rotation and during initial climb. So it did hit a tree. Yeah, it did, yes. Uh, uh, Contributing factors were overconfidence by the crew, assuming that they would lose sufficient weight during taxi for departure, rendering their gross weight with Within the performance calculations, uh, low situational awareness by crew and dispatch, which influenced the decision to continue the takeoff under limited performance conditions. Weaknesses in the operational control and management by the operator's dispatch by not adequately briefing the crew to take into account the atmospheric conditions, ambient temperature above all, which was like 33 point something degrees C. 33.9, almost 34, and that's got to be what? That's got to be 90-something, mm-hmm. mid-90s or something like that, would that be? Mm-hmm. Just uh, a minute. Staff! I don't know. I, I'm an airline pilot. We work in centigrade. <sighs> I work in both. I'm I'm bi-temperature. <laughs> Not, 33C is 91.4F. Okay, 91.4 is 33. What's 33.9? Well, 33.9 <laughs> yeah. is... <laughs> Uh, 93.02. Okay, 93.02 degrees. 93 degrees is hot. Um, Hot, hot, hot. Okay, Uh, let's see. The investigation analyzed that the aircraft weighed an estimated 109,836 pounds. I know, you carry more weight and fuel, Nick, on your 340, uh, including 16,866 pounds of fuel, at the apron, according to the man, that's probably minimum fuel, uh, rival fuel, right? 16,866 pounds of fuel. That's what they're starting off with. But for Nick, yeah. that would be like maybe minimum the fuel or something. Fuel. Yeah, that'd be fumes. According to the manual, the aircraft's maximum takeoff weight was 109. They were 109,836. 
minimum fuel needed to Bogota was 15,970. The investigation found that the weight of the three occupants of the aircraft was not included in the weight and balance computations. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. And these guys were big, fat guys. No, I'm just kidding. I don't, <laughs> yeah. Not sure about that. There's another ton. <laughs> 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 it could be based on the assumed uh, takeoff when they give the they break down the V speeds, what they should have been, all that kind of stuff, and the fact that they took off uh, at one hundred eight thousand five hundred seventy seven pounds. However, due to the increased ambient temperature of thirty three point nine, um, the max takeoff weight was only one hundred seven nine fifty. So they were six hundred six pounds overweight. Doesn't seem like a lot to me, overweight, but it was overweight no, I, nonetheless. I, I, I'm not sure. I, and these figures aren't really working for me. Are they? If, if the aircraft weighed an estimated uh, 109.8 thousand pounds, mm-hmm. how do you get the maximum takeoff weight of 107.9, uh, only 606 pounds overweight? That that looks like it ought to be nearly um, 2,000 pounds overweight, not 606 pounds overweight. But well, maybe there including was... Including taxi fuel in that? You there's a, transa- that much, a translation fuel. error in the calculator. Well, um, must be. And two degrees over temperature, uh, environmental temperature, two degrees above what you're expecting. That actually, although it doesn't sound a lot, is a lot. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. Well, anyway, uh, despite that overweight condition, with both engines operating, the aircraft should have cleared the obstacle by ninety feet. There had been no engine failure. Uh, there was no engine failure on takeoff. Even if an engine had failed, the aircraft should have cleared the runway end at thirty-five feet above ground level, and the aircraft should have cleared the obstacle by sixty. Uh, during the takeoff run, this is a little confusing to me. Uh, it was noticed that the captain pushed the yoke forward twice without a change in attitude of the aircraft. Backward pressure became visible only at 138 knots. Now, I'm assuming they mean the flight data recorder information, perhaps, how they'd know this. However, the aircraft became airborne only at 151 knots indicated. Immediately after the aircraft became airborne and established a positive rate of climb, the number one engine's EPR was lost when the aircraft hit the tree. Uh, it thus is clear that upon applying back pressure, there was no positive climb response of the aircraft until additional speed had been gained. Okay, so there's that's a symptom of the fact that the, they were using bad performance data and uh, the airplane was not responding the way it normally would if you had those same inputs. Um, anyway, uh, the first officer made uh, the report or he made the call for rotate. But the captain did not immediately rotate, perhaps to get more speed for rotation. So the captain probably sensed that things weren't performing the way they should. So decided to keep the uh, nose down and on the runway to gain more speed. Uh, The CVR revealed complacency by the crew. None of the crew members questioned the takeoff weight or the ambient temperature or suggested to wait until the temperature had dropped again. So... And, not, and by the way, they also mentioned here that uh, the investigation uh, analyzed that there were surprising similarities with the crash of another company, Boeing 727-200 in 2016. Uh, so, um, yeah. Um, well, I don't lucky know what else to say about houses. this. Yeah, they are um, uh, lucky they didn't hit those houses. Yeah. Um, 
yeah. just beyond the end. I the mean, uh, they they knew they were overweight, uh, and quite honestly, uh, most of these figures are pretty conservative. So if you have got uh, a you know a slight overweight condition, uh, the aircraft will normally behave pretty well because there are little fudge factors built in and you know you can usually get away with a bit so and they're they're saying here that they believe they they were the aircraft was only 606 pounds overweight that is not a great deal and that should have been well within those little fudge factors uh even if the aircraft lost an engine well it didn't lose all of its thrust they said it only lost 50 percent. so this is not like you've got a dead engine at v1 which is the situation most of these performance figures are based around the worst case scenario okay you get to v1 which at this case was only 128 knots now uh, you lose an engine there and it dies you you shout go because you're after V1 and you're going to now take off on one engine. You should still have the performance to achieve 35 feet at the end of the runway, which means by the time they got to this tree, they should have been well clear of it. Um, so uh, I'm going, well, they haven't actually lost an engine. They're in a much better position than that. They've only lost 50% power on one of their engines, which indicates to me that the takeoff weight and the temperature combined the too high a weight and too high a temperature were really much worse than is suggested here so yeah uh, the fact that they, <laughs> they couldn't get it off the ground until 151 knots is you know just a big worry the captain was off i suspect was trying to you know, judge the end of the runway, judge his speed acceleration and just make the best of a bad deal and hope that he's going to clear it. And he didn't really rotate at the right numbers, uh, perhaps because he wasn't confident the airplane would get off the ground. And um, he hit the trees as a result. Very lucky he didn't lose the other engine because of this. Uh, so I'm going, whoa. I buy what you're selling there. I agree. Yeah. Any comments from uh, Nick Camacho regarding this? Nope, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, Airline pilots are all cowboys. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> I was getting ready to say that uh, they do have cowboys down in South uh, America. Yeah! Oh, yeah. Gauchos. Yeah. Isn't that what they're called? Gauchos I think so. Or gauchos, yeah. 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 As opposed yeah. to grouchos. Which like, uh, yeah, I was going to say gaucho brothers. marks. No, that's <laughs> yes. something else. Um, all right. Let's continue. This is this is Greg Peterson's favorite incident. Oh, yeah. Greg Peterson, our, our former uh, big-ass ah, fan. Ah, he has proved right. And well he, done, uh, Greg. <laughs> he sent Take us, the prize. Have the gold cup. <laughs> he sent us some feedback, uh, which we're going to cover as news because this, this is uh, related to a news item. And he sent us some feedback regarding what he thought may have been the case, uh, why this happened. And he says, hey, crew, looks like the National Transportation Safety Board has issued their final report on the uh, Delta 767 that lost aileron control but then regained it as they descended. I'm sure you'll probably cover it, but here's the link from the Aviation Herald. He said, make sure you cover it and make me look good. Um, so we did. And uh, he says, sounds, <laughs> yes. yeah, sounds like my guess might have been right. The controls froze up from the leak and then began to A thaw well -educated as guess, they descended. Yes. Say. 
Yeah, he's a very smart man. Of course, the NTSB report goes into more detail about what caused the leak. That sounds like the circuit breakers that were left open after maintenance. Oop. And then he signs off by saying, in thrust, we trust Greg Peterson. And uh, so here we go. The report released by the NTSB, the final report in docket uh, on the 21st of April of this year, concluded the probable cause was a failure of maintenance personnel to close the drain mast heater circuit breakers, which resulted in the formation of ice in the forward drain mast, an improper flow of wastewater into the main landing gear well, wheel well, and the formation of ice on one or more aileron system components. And I guess there was something going on um, maintenance-wise, uh, and uh, the maintainers uh, as part of the maintenance procedure, and Nixie, you can correct me if I'm wrong with any of this, um, but uh, let's see, they had to perform some kind of a procedure uh, to, uh, but they, which required them to open or, you know, pop the uh, circuit breaker for the drain mast heaters. And I guess when they finished up the procedure, they forgot to close the circuit breakers or mash them in. And it said it was possible that the circuit breakers were inadvertently left open when the airplane was returned to service. And the, these circuit breakers are not circuit. We have a bunch of circuit breakers in the cockpit, but these are circuit breakers that were down in the uh, electronics E&E compartment, I think. Um, trying to remember. Oh, I was about to criticize the crew there for mm -hmm. not checking the. No, all I don't the think it was anything that the, the crew could have seen. Um, ah, yeah, I'm trying to find the actual it's in that area where Harrison Ford went down into in Air Force One. Ah, <laughs> thank you. That's good. Harrison Ford. You mean to say this airplane doesn't have? Uh, can't record the position of all the circuit breakers and give you a warning if there are circuit breakers pulled. <gasps> so I, I was going to ask that. that. I, what, what? I was surprised as well that there was that there are yeah. actual uh, circuit breakers or actual. Uh, what am I trying to say here? Component like components that can be actuated that that you don't have, uh, you don't check or have some sort of uh, indication of. That surprised me a little bit as well. Yeah, I know. I, I'm just used to Airbus, of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Is everything that in one Airbus in. located on the electrical panel in the cockpit? Yeah, if you've got a uh, you've got a circuit breaker page, if you've got a circuit breaker that's pulled, you have a look at that page, and you'll get a list of all the circuit breakers that are not made. Hmm. Well, another another uh, score, another point for <laughs> Airbus versus Boeing, I guess. Uh, well, yeah. these old Boeings, uh, I'm sure the modern Boeings have got. Equivalent. You know, this Boeing probably is not much older than the air. You know, the the Airbus is out there flying either. But uh, anyway, the or maybe it is. Who knows? Uh, the um, drain mast heater circuit breakers were located in the electronic equipment bay, were found open, and th this you know seems to suggest to me that these are like regular circuit breakers. You know, just pushing in and, and pulling, opening and closing. But who knows? So. Just uh, we have to uh, go ahead and do this for Greg. Yay! You're yeah, right, man. Well, fact, I was going to say, surely, surely you have this, this section of the show where he said this, and then 
we all laughed at him and said, that's not a real thing. Well, I didn't believe that I didn't believe that Boeing would design an airplane there where the control there rods went through a place where, that wasn't you know kept warm. That where water could gather and ice well, could form, it, but obviously I was wrong. Stay warm. Like there's a system to keep it warm. It just malfunctioned. Yeah, oh, well, the, no, the system that the the thing that was supposed to be kept warm was the dump mast. Yeah, you know, which is just a pipe sticking. Okay. For those who don't know, pipe sticking out the bottom of the airplane where grey water uh, is allowed to flow out. So when you um, uh, empty a sink. Uh, that doesn't go, it isn't held on the aircraft. That goes out through this dump mast. And to stop ice forming on the end of this dump mast when you're up in really cold temperatures, it's heated so that, you know, it flows through all the time. Uh, so if you ever feel water splashing on your head and you think it's rain, it might be, but it might also be the grey water from some airliner that's flying over. <laughs> it. Yep. If that heater fails or is has its power removed by pulling the circuit breaker, then you're going to get a block of ice falling off. That's the reason yep. you have uh, these heaters. And the water draining. Uh, or in this case, you're going to have your control <laughs> rods freeze up. Yeah, so apparently because oh the God. drain masks weren't being heated, as Nick just mentioned, and uh, backed everything up, so water that was supposed to be draining through them wasn't it's backing up into the lines until it leaked outside of the drain system plumbing. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, there's a, I don't know if we're going to get to it today, but there's mm -hmm. also a feedback article uh, down further, further down in the notes. Yeah. That talks about the Waddington effect. Yes. Right? And yes. that's the, it's kind of interesting because I don't, I don't know. They don't go into detail about what procedure they're doing here. No. So I'm not saying that's what happened here, but uh, it is an interesting tie. They're doing, some form of maintenance on something else, and that maintenance triggered a, oops, sorry, separate but uh, kind of critical failure. Yeah, later on could have been. Yeah, it, it's another thing that you don't think this this very minor device, a, a little heater on the end of a of a drain mast, would have s such a critical effect on your flight control system. Yeah, uh, and it's you know it's those those funyuns lining up again. <laughs> Yep. Um, uh, it's incredible how these things you you think oh that's inconsequential, but inevitably, possibly, it turns out not to be. Yep. All right. Again, well done uh, on your supposition uh, and analysis, yep. uh, Greg Peterson. And uh, yeah, I think we've got a new job for him. He needs to be yeah. an NTSB investigator yeah. next. I think he'd make a great investigator. All right, uh, next item, United Airlines. This is from Paddle Your Own Canoe. Mm -hmm. United Airlines Boeing 737 was forced to divert after pilots realized the cockpit window was unlatched after takeoff. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Yeah, that's no <laughs> good. Um, do you have it on your checklist, Jeff? Uh, do. we? Yes. And that yeah, is, uh, so my, on our, it was on my checklist too. Cockpit uh, windows closed and latched. Now, it, it used to be on at least, well, the airplane that I used to fly, they had that checklist item, windows closed and latched, on the before takeoff checklist. Yeah, that's where it was enough. And uh, then they decided for fleet standardization or something, I don't know why, they, they moved it to the, uh, the, the um, what's it called, the uh, pre-flight checklist. Interior, no, before, the, uh, before oh. you even push back, uh, the pre-flight checklist. 
Oh, but and, you might still be using the cockpit yes, window. Yes, I agree with you. I mean, there, there have been several times where I've had to open up that window for various reasons, handing out the yeah. release form or like shouting out the window to somebody on the ground because <laughs> they're not hearing Giving a V sign to the guy on the ground. And, you know, like wolf whistles to a good looking lady walking <laughs> yes. butt. No, I don't do that. That piece of baggage and, is going across the tarmac. Yeah. The, oh, yeah. Yelling for somebody to grab that piece of baggage uh, that's rolling uh, down the tarmac. Um, yep. But uh, yeah, so I'm thinking, wait a minute. So now, you know, I've already gone through that windows closed and latched portion of the checklist in the pre-flight checklist. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a, it, in my mind, doesn't think Wrongly sound placed. like a great place to put it. But uh, they, they decided that that's where we're going to put it now. Um, so uh, let's see here. Uh, I was, you know, I'd, I'd even planned on doing something funny and I uh, now can't find my little joke. Um, hmm. Oh, here it is right here. Okay. Um, so a United Airlines flight to Washington Dulles declared an emergency and was forced to return to Bradley International Airport in Connecticut shortly after takeoff because one of the flight deck windows was unlatched. The pilots only discovered that the window wasn't shut properly after the Boeing 737-900 had taken off. None of the 178 passengers and crew on board the nine-year-old aircraft, I don't know why that's important, were injured after the pilot safely landed the plane less than 20 minutes later. According to one report, United Airlines Flight 1274 leveled off at 4,000 feet a short time after takeoff and it declare, declared an emergency because one of the flight deck windows had popped open. The radio transmission from the pilots was difficult to hear because the sound of wind in the background, but air traffic controllers were able to clear the plane for an immediate return. <laughs> and this said. is, uh, we have some uh, audio of this. Let's see. All right. See, I think we're the only podcast hey, out there that has my that wind audio. Sounds this is why the window was open. <laughs> oh, there's your wind. You're, you're uh, okay. Uh, no farting. Sign. They were airing <laughs> it out. They were trying to air it out. Yeah, they were airing it out All for right. sure. Um, I tried to find, uh, it, it's very, very difficult to find uh, a recording of a airplane cockpit window open in flight. I just couldn't find one. You should have just played that thing about the, the long not, tail not thing. Uh, the only airplane, well, it's not true. Uh, the only jet I flew, the way you were allowed to fly with the window open, was the Hunter. It had one of these canopies that slid forward over your head. Mm -hmm. And uh, you were allowed to have it open up to 180 knots. So I thought one day, well, I'll, I'll do the, you know, the cool fighter pilot bit and get airborne with my elbow on the <laughs> window ledge. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, it, it, the airplane flies fine, but like you had there, the noise was so incredibly loud. I couldn't hear about anything. <laughs> so, you know, I had to wind it closed on the electric motors before I could speak to air traffic. Yeah, but as Liz is saying to me uh, from the control room, you looked cool, though. Oh, yeah, right? I'm very cool with my elbow out. Yeah, at that that. <laughs> At 180 knots, I'm sure that slipstream would want to drag your arm out. Where did your left so, arm go? Uh, <laughs> yeah, long story. Uh, let's Absolutely. see. Uh, there is a side window on either side of the Boeing 737 cockpit that can be opened inside the cockpit. It can be used for when the pilots want to uh, communicate directly with ground staff or evacuate the aircraft in an emergency. Yes, that's actually one of the 
um, alternative uh, exits for us in the cockpit. If we can't get out through the cockpit door, we can actually, I don't Do know. Do they if, actually I, measure the size of the pilots to see well, if they can get through that window? Could be a problem. <laughs> could be a problem. That's why you want to fly the big heavy airplanes, right? The bigger windows. Oh, yeah, yeah. Those, the A340 had a nice big window. There you yes. go. Uh, interestingly, in this article here, it is possible to open and close the flight deck window in flight at lower altitudes, and Boeing has training materials for pilots to do exactly this. On this occasion, the aircraft was taken out of service for 12 hours, which might suggest that engineers want to make sure there wasn't any damage to the aircraft or an underlying reason for the window to suddenly open. I'm guessing maybe they just, it wasn't proper, the, properly latched to begin with, but that's just a guess. I mean, if since there's a procedure to close it, mm -hmm. one asks the question, why don't they just close it? Do the procedure, close the window? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they, there was too much resistance. It seems like they would be, yeah. have been able to get the thing closed again. Yeah. That's a good question. And, and the other thing is, if they'd been a bit higher, perhaps the pressurization would have closed it for them. Yeah, true. Keep your hand, your fingers away from the opening. <laughs> All that well, would... I have to say, you know, the, it's, it's creepy, but mm -hmm. um, as you climb an altitude and the pressurization has a real effect on the inside of the aircraft, uh, our cockpit windows used to make a big loud crack every now and again. Mm -hmm. And I think, I'm just assuming, I think they were just seating themselves yep. fully. But it used to make it's loud, and it you know really makes you jump because you <laughs> it really it does. does. It's, it's almost like a firecracker going off. <laughs> yes. Like what? What's that? Yeah. Woo. yeah, yeah. It's yeah. I agree. It's not a pleasant sound, especially no. when you're not expecting it. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, next one here from the Aviation Herald. Um, a Pell uh, or Pell Air? Never heard of them. Uh, Saab 340 Alpha Freighter on behalf of Rex Regional Express, uh, registration Victor Hotel, Kilo Delta Kilo, performing freight flight 9982 from Wagga Wagga. Is that right? Wagga Wagga. Wagga Wagga. Uh, uh, let's see, what's the NS stand for again? Um, New South Wales. Well, wouldn't it be the NSW? Yeah, okay. New yeah. South Wales, that's what threw me off too. Shall I used to. That's where I used to live when I was out in Australia. Oh yeah, in New South Wales, not Wagga oh, Wagga. Not Wagga Wagga. No, <laughs> uh, to and they've got a dreadful beer in New South Wales called Tuis. So don't drink that if you go to Australia, please. It's horrible. There you go. Another. Uh, yeah, we'll get mail. Liz says um, <laughs> to Charleville, uh, Queensland, Australia was en route at flight level two two zero, about seventy nautical miles northwest of Cobar. New South Wales, uh, when the crew received a smoke indication on board uh, the aircraft, followed Ouch. shortly by smoke appearing in the cabin and cockpit. Oh, that's no Ouch. good. Crew performed an emergency descent to 6,000 feet, turned around and diverted to Cobar and landed on Cobar's runway 23 about 14 minutes after leaving flight level 220. Pretty quick. Emergency yep. services needed to dismantle parts of the aircraft to extinguish the fire. Yikes. There were good no Lord. injuries. The aircraft wow. sustained substan substantial some damage. damage. Wasn't it? Look at that. Yeah. That's some Look at that. Charring. charring. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big area, too. It is. Um, Golly. Let's see. A smoke indicator alerted the pilots of smoke on board. Cabin started filling with smoke. Crews arrived 
to find smoke issuing from the right side of the aircraft under the wing area. Fire and rescue crews quickly got to work dismantling the plane to locate the source of the fire and extinguish. The batteries were quickly isolated as initially thought it was caused by an electrical harness. After a second inspection inside the aircraft was found to have significant damage to the flooring in which the fire had started. The floor was removed, checked for further signs of heat, and determined safe. The aircraft was secured, ventilated, and the site handed over to airport staff. Excellent job by all involved. The quick action by the firefighters and aircraft crew prevented a total loss of the aircraft. That was a close one. Well, well done, crew. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, And also the aircraft cost. Um, Nixie? Well, uh, you know, uh, eh? the stuff burns, but... You just need an ignition source. Yeah. I I'm wondering what the, was it like bare wires or something that uh, caused the fire to begin with? I don't know. Pass on that. It's a shame they haven't got the analysis because they must have worked, tried to work out where it initiated. Yeah. I reckon it was um, somebody emptying the contents of their pipe onto the floor. Hmm. Uh, you mean one of the pilots because it was a freight flight? I don't Probably. think there any passengers. <laughs> Probably one of the pilots would nip back there for a quick crack and <laughs> stamped it out on the floor. Yeah, he thought he did. Yeah, it's too bad that. No, Rick, I'm only kidding. Pilots. Yeah, too bad that Rick's really not here. That. He could uh, tell us about how they go back in the back and you know smoke stuff. Yeah, well, they usually go back and have a chat to the cows, don't they? Have a fag with them mm. and. And that uh, explain what that means, um, Nick. It's for a, the American audience, yeah, please. For the American audience. <laughs> A cigarette is what he means by that word. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, we don't need any yes. more negative feedback, <laughs> negative <Yes>. emails. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Let's let's continue. Uh, Somebody with, named Captain Jeff sent this in. Oh, Captain Jeff sent this in. He did. Cool. Must be a good one then. From the Aviation oh, don't Herald. Don't skip it. No, let's not skip it. <laughs> Too much work done here. Uh, so a fly Dubai. Boeing 737-800 registration Alpha 6 Foxtrot Echo Delta performing Flight 576 from Kathmandu in Nepal to Dubai, United Arab Emirates with 167 people on board. Climbing out of Kathmandu when the aircraft sustained a bird strike. While the crew was analyzing the situation, the aircraft leveled off at flight level 280, subsequently climbed to 340 and continued the flight to Dubai currently being en route. Ground observers posted videos claiming the aircraft was on fire. Um, And then uh, Simon says, possibly confusing landing lights with fire and was refused permission to return to Kathmandu. Other observers claimed that the aircraft suffered an engine uh, fire. A passenger video surfacing on April 25th, which was a couple days ago, shows the left-hand engine suffered three compressor stalls and engine surges. Uh, the airline reported the aircraft experienced a bird strike on departure from Kathmandu. The, after following the standard operating procedures, the crew continued the flight to Dubai, where the aircraft is estimated to arrive at uh, 14 minutes past midnight local time, about one hour behind schedule, following a departure of about 75 minutes past schedule. On April 25th, 2023, a spokeswoman for the Civil Aviation Authority of Nepal, uh, CAAN, said that an engine caught fire on takeoff from Kathmandu. The fire was brought under control and the flight was normal and then continued to Dubai. (laughs) 
the CAAN subsequently banned two fly Dubai managers from entering Kathmandu Airport, stating their claim of a bird strike was misleading. There was no evidence of a bird strike. However, one engine caught fire shortly after takeoff from Kathmandu. A technical committee had been set up or has been set up to investigate the occurrence. Uh, and then, again, Simon uh, puts a note in, how on earth can an engine on fire and damaged by fire produce sufficient thrust to permit the aircraft to climb to flight level 340? This CAAN claim is thus beyond belief and raises questions about the competence of the ooh, Civil Aviation Authority of Nepal. Ooh, those- I think I can probably explain that. Okay. Uh, the airline indicated they were going to respond to the CAAN claims shortly. Now, let me get to the witness video, and we can kind of maybe figure out what happened here, I think, maybe. Okay, so we're watching some flashes of light coming from one of the engines of the 737. And here we go, we can hear the explosions. Anyway, so certainly does look like um, there were uh, some compressor stalls yeah. coming from the right CFM 56 engine. It doesn't seem to me to be out of the uh, out of question or out of possibility that uh, the airplane actually did hit some birds and caused a momentary. A momentary oh yeah, hundred uh, percent agree there, Jeff. And uh, so I guess the only thing to me might be why you would continue flying after those compressor stalls, but perhaps they, after going through the procedure, I don't know, I've never flown the 737 with the CF, uh, CFM 56 engine. Maybe their, their uh, procedure says that if everything is under control and all engine parameters look normal, you may proceed with the flight. Now, what do you think, Captain Nick? Yeah. Um, no, I, <laughs> a difficult one, this. Uh, yes, the bird strike can definitely cause the engine uh, to stall. It can disrupt the airflow into the engine, and uh, that disrupted airflow will cause uh, compressor stalls, which will uh, give rise to bursts of flame from the back of the engine. Uh, and it's only really that the airflow has been disrupted. You've still got fuel pouring into the engine. That fuel's going to go out the back. It's it's very hot. It's going to get ignited. Uh, and until the engine develops a smooth airflow through it, uh, it will behave in this way. Uh, I've had plenty of engine stores uh, that have some have cleared, some have uh, cleared after throttling back and opening the engine again, opening up the engine again, and some have not cleared because the engine has actually suffered enough damage for the airflow to never straighten up and fly right, if you pardon the, <laughs> the pun. Not the pun. Oh, the, the, uh, what am I there? trying to say? The plane yeah, the tease for the plane. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, once you've got uh, the disrupted airflow through your engine clear, um, and the and the engine is operating within normal parameters. You then have to decide if en- if damage has been done to the engine, um, and uh, if uh, damage has been done, or you suspect damage has been done, uh, it would be sensible to land at a suitable airport. 
Now, you then have to decide where the Kathmandu is a suitable airport to take this aircraft to. And there, I think, uh, I don't know Kathmandu, but I've heard of plenty of incidents. It's not an easy airport to land at. Uh, and I doubt the engineering facilities there are brilliant. But I, I don't know the, the airport, and I don't know what uh, Air Dubai have in the way of maintenance personnel there. So they, the crew might well have decided that having cleared the uh, the engine issue, uh, it was safer and uh, a good commercial decision to take the aircraft onwards. They would undoubtedly have had more diversions available to them between Kathmandu and Dubai. Uh, and as they went, their confidence in the performance of the engine might have been sufficient that they felt they could go all the way to their destination. Um that that's that's my feeling. So yes, it could have been a bad strike. Uh, yes, the engine had disrupted airflow, which led to those bangs and the flame out the back. Um, it, undoubtedly, the uh, engine began to operate normally, if not close to normally, because they got all the way up to um, cruising altitude of what the mid thirties, um, which indicated to me that it was producing good thrust. And uh, the rest of it is really uh, the decision of the crew uh, combined with the company and their maintenance personnel as to whether it was uh, safe and sensible to carry on all the way to their destination. What I'm having trouble understanding is this little spat going on between. Uh, <laughs> well, that's good, isn't it? Yeah, I like that. No, you can't covet. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of editorial commentary in this. <laughs> yes. Like, how on earth can an engine on fire and damage? Now, I don't know. Maybe there's a issue with uh, translation language, um, you know, difference and uh, the way things are being said. I mean, you know, a, something that is uh, a compressor stall, especially at night, and you see streaks of, you know, bangs and streaks of flames coming out of an engine may appear that the engine's on fire. But in this case, that's not the case if these are indeed compressor stalls. And maybe the uh, spokeswoman for the Civil Aviation Authority of Nepal just was making it all the same. The compressor stall, engine on fire, same thing. Uh you know, terminology maybe being used here is is yeah. not correct. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Some of these comments seem to be written by non-engineering uh, or non-aviation mm -hmm. personnel, perhaps more management personnel. Yeah, I'm thinking that might be. Oh, uh, good point. Um, List uh, thinks that uh, they need to put uh, Greg Peterson, uh, Greg Peterson, Aviation <laughs> Investigations Incorporated. Um, on this uh, right away, and he can probably. I don't think there's enough ice involved for Greg to <laughs> you know, really shine here. Yeah, well, he'll, he'll figure it out anyway. All right, anything else to say about that? I guess what, it was more of a deal than I thought. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, it said the aircraft. So I was trying to figure out where it hit the bird because it said sustained a bird strike climbing out. While the crew was analyzing the situation, the aircraft leveled off at flight level 280. They're not saying that it hit the bird near flight level 280. No, I, no. Don't no, think I think so. by looking at the video, the, the bird strike would be what triggered the initial problem. And they only looked like they were at four, four, four or 5,000 feet, yeah. if that. Yeah. Uh, and then they probably, if it was a bird strike that caused it, the 
the engine recovered, the airflow improved, and the bird bits got cooked. <laughs> and they probably climbed all the way up to 280, trying to work out what they were going to do. Yeah. Uh, are we going to turn around and go back, or are we going to let's get in touch with the company? Let's. Uh, let's all have a chat about it. Let's do a bit of CRM, bring as many people as we can into this decision-making process so the captain isn't carrying the can entirely on his own shoulders. Um, so, yeah, I think that was probably the time it took for them to make their decision. And let's not forget also that uh, them some high mountains up there in, in Nepal. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's true, actually. Yeah, I think, uh, all right, isn't there a big one? Black Hawk says, uh, if I can get this little menu out of the way, uh, I think in some parts of Asia, airport manager may get grief for a bird strike. Thus, they don't want to admit that. Oh, okay. Could be. Yeah, I think uh, it's a bit like, you know, hitting two birds coming out of, uh, you know, a pearl sully there coming out of LaGuardia, or was it? They came out of, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, initially, uh, you couldn't move in the New York region um, for uh, wanting reports on birds. And if you clobbered a bird, they wanted a five-page report on it uh, while they, I think, they try to sort out where they birds. Because the, the the people involved feel that they are liable to a great degree on controlling bird activity around their airports. But, of course, right. we know that birds come and go. It's always impossible. Yeah, but when they're like five miles away from the airport at 3,000 feet, in the case of the miracle on the Hudson, I mean, I don't know how the airport yeah. manager can be responsible for that. <laughs> exactly. Anyway. Okay. This one from uh, your mileage may vary. Uh, according to Gulf News, an Air India pilot flying from Dubai to Delhi on February February 27th, entertained a female friend in the cockpit, violating Indian Aviation Regulator Directorate General of Civil, Civil Aviation, DGCA, safety norms, according to a complaint by a member of the cabin crew. The complaint alleges that the captain, who was unnamed, oh, how do you go through life without a name? That's weird. Um, one, she just had a number. Hey, you. Captain uh, wanted the flight attendants to ensure the cockpit looked welcoming before inviting his female friend in and asked that she be served the food and drink typically served in business class. According to the complaint, issues on the Air India Flight 915 started even before boarding. The pilots were late for their boarding time, and when they did finally show up, they went into the aircraft without discussion with the flight crew. Uh, the cabin crew, I guess. The pilots abor uh, boarded the flight along with the passengers. Then, according to the complaint, the captain asked the crew to perform, uh, inform him if there were vacant seats in business class. He said he had a friend who was traveling in economy class, and he wanted her to be upgraded. The crew told him there weren't any empty seats for her. According to the person who filed the complaint, the captain then asked her to bring his woman friend to the cockpit. He also told them to fetch some pillows from the bunk for her comfort. The woman sat on the first observer seat. He said the cockpit should appear welcoming, warm, and comfortable, as though he was preparing his living room for a lady friend. <laughs> also, to take her drinks and snacks, uh, or take her drinks and snacks order and serve her in the cockpit. 
I'm thinking, uh, do you, what, how do you think about or feel about this, Captain Nick? Very impressive. Yeah, I thought so, too. I told him, <laughs> Captain, I'm not comfortable serving alcohol in the cockpit. This seems to have upset him a lot, and his entire attitude changed from that moment onwards. He became very snappy and rude, and from there on started treating me like a servant, working exclusively for him, the crew member said in her complaint. As per DGCA's civil aviation regulations, quote, an employee of the aircraft operator who has the permission of the pilot in command and whose duties are such that his or her entry into the cockpit is necessary for safe operation of the aircraft can only be allowed in the cockpit provided they have done the mandatory breathalyzer tests. Hmm. It also specifies that only those who have completed breathalyzer tests are allowed to enter the cockpit. I think I just said that. Um, the regulator is looking at the technical and safety aspects involved in the matter, said a GG, DGCA official who wished to remain anonymous. The complaint says the woman spent over an hour in the cockpit. While she was inside, the crew was summoned multiple times during the passenger service on the D uh, Delhi Dubai sector to offer her business class fare, food, and snacks. Though it interrupted the flow of service, all requests were promptly catered to, the complaint said. The person who filed the complaint also said that while the passenger was inside the cockpit, she went to speak to the captain, and she noticed the pilots were not in their usual positions. We're not going to talk about what positions they were in. <laughs> uh, okay. I noticed that the first officer was sleeping, reclined fully, with a pillow, and the pilot in charge was sitting across, facing the passenger in the rear observer station to chat. The pilot in charge indicated that the first officer co-pilot was taking a controlled rest and sleep. Wait a minute, isn't this a 737? What kind of airplane was this? Well, it must have been must have been an Airbus because that sounds like they couldn't have done that in the 737 cockpit. No, uh, the uh, picture looks Airbusy. Oh, okay. That was just a stock picture that Liz put up there, but oh, okay. I think it. I think it's likely that it was an Airbus. It doesn't really say in this article. Uh, the complaint said that both pilots accompanied the pass. Oh, this is, I thought was interesting. Uh, the complaint noted that both pilots accompanied the passenger to the immigration area, I guess, after the flight. Hmm. Yeah. The person uh, who complained also alleged that the captain was angry with her and made sexist remarks during the return flight. She added that she believed that pilot's behavior required a psychiatric evaluation at an independent Air Force medical <laughs> testing station through DGCA as he posed a risk to passenger safety. I'm wondering if this person that complained, the uh, cabin crew member, sounds mm -hmm. like maybe the lead, um, maybe had some kind of a relationship uh, in the past with this captain. Well, you do wonder, don't you? Yeah. Certainly she seems to have cited almost everything she could think of uh, that this captain might even come close to have done wrong uh in her complaint uh, and a lot of these seem incredibly petty however the big thing which she should have stuck to rather than perhaps citing all this nebulous stuff is that uh he insisted on bringing someone to the flight deck who probably wasn't authorized and hadn't gone through uh, the right uh, authorization um you know and checks uh and um then insisted she be served alcohol which is probably a complete no-no uh because i know uh, on our aircraft, if we had someone come to the flight deck, they weren't allowed to uh, consume any alcohol whilst they were in the jump seat. Yeah, I find it hard to believe that the 
that young lady that uh, was up there was uh, necessary for the safety of the flight. Well, exactly. Unless uh, the captain felt he couldn't perform to his best unless she was there. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Liz does make a point. Uh, she could have been a passenger. Um, what do you call it? An emotional support. An passenger. emotional support passenger. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably very true. Actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least some kind of support. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, the captain was on a sticky wicket, really, wasn't he? Because uh, having, uh, you know, um, <laughs> upset his cabin crew a bit <laughs> to, mm -hmm. by insisting this lady come to the flight deck, he might have been well. I better make better stick to the rules. Uh, in which case, he should really have left her where she was. I mean. I think we have a, 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 a an odd opinion of people's uh, enjoyment when they come to the flight deck. Uh, they usually, uh, in reality, they usually, uh, unless they're complete av geeks, enjoy it for a little while. But then it's actually much more comfortable being back in your seat watching a movie, getting a proper service. But yeah. uh, there you go. I always enjoy a proper service. Oh, uh, main Micah. Of course you do. Uh, main man Micah <laughs> says, "I was going to say, could this be the pilot's ex-wife? <laughs> could be." <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, definitely. Uh, Mizzou says, or future ex-wife. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's an interesting, interesting story. All right. Well, it's time for us to get to know each other and what's been happening with the crew members uh, since the last episode or the last episode they were on with us. And I think we'll start with... Nick Camacho, because it's been a episode or two since you've been with us, and you've been a busy man. Uh, tell us what what you've been up to, Nick. Yeah, I can't. Uh, I think I've missed two episodes, but yeah, it's been a couple episodes since I've been on. Uh, the majority of that time was taken up with a work trip out to the West Coast. Uh, so I got out to the West Coast, uh, spent most of my time out there doing real work stuff, but I did get to spend um, the majority of one of the weekends that I was out there working on the C-47. We are in deep um, off-season maintenance mode, trying to get that wrapped up so that we're ready to fly here shortly. So I spent the majority of my time uh, replacing some hinges on the cargo door that had fallen victim to exfoliation corrosion. So that was a, uh, I was hoping to get it done in half a day or so, but then, you know, it turned into a uh, standard old airplane hey, thing. Did you say exfoliation corrosion? That's what mm -hmm. I heard him say. Yeah. But is that when you take the hair off something? <laughs> it's it's not. Oh, um, okay. It's actually. Oh, so it's uh, when you take the skin off something. Yeah. It's uh, That's what exfoliation means to me. Ah. <laughs> scrubbing that skin and all those dead skin cells off <laughs> yeah i should have i didn't even uh should have given you a picture um I, I mean i didn't anticipate talking about it but it's, it's actually a form of corrosion that uh it's not you know like most corrosion like um rust and that sort of stuff is like surface corrosion on a material exfoliation corrosion is basically like a metallurgical defect in the um making of the metal so it's kind of like oh. corrosion from the inside out and what it results in is like this flaky looking, so, you know, so you have a, a piece of metal. In this case, we had some L brackets that were um, hinge 
brackets and it starts separating like almost like pieces of paper or what it reminds me is um are you guys familiar with like baklava how it's mm-hmm. like super thin pieces oh, yeah. of like puff pastry so that's kind of what it looks like uh, when you get some real serious um exfoliation corrosion um and it's pretty common from uh, airplane parts back in the 40s we've run into it on other places on the uh 47 um because they were still kind of figuring out the metallurgy and how to uh you know do how to how to make uh, aluminum extrusions and stuff like that so yeah so well, would you, okay. would you say so, then like uh, exfoliation corrosion is a severe, severe type of intergranular corrosion that raises surface grains from metal by forming corrosion products at grain boundaries under the surface? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I would, uh, I would buy cool. it. I'm trying to see if I can find a picture. Yeah. It is frequently oh. is it frequently found on uh, extruded sections where grain thickness is not as thick as the rolled <laughs> grain? <laughs> So let me um, let me see if I can share this. Neil Landworm's got got it nailed, um, I think. Oh, Neil Landworm says, "Sounds like what our super guppy used to suffer from. Looks like the flaky puff pastry." Yeah, yep. like that. No, that was buck-lava. flaky puff pastry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look at that! Oh wow! Oh, I yeah. I've seen that. I mean, yeah. not that actual thing, but so that's exfoliation corrosion. How it's oh. starting to separate. You know, it was all one piece of metal. Yeah. And if you look at it, you'd, you'd almost think that that was like a laminated yeah. part. Yeah, absolutely. But, so do you have to replace that entire part? Yep. Okay. And so, you know, what I was saying was, uh, you know, you we, I thought it was going to be relatively quick. Well, then getting the fasteners out of the hinge, because they were old fasteners, that took more time than I had anticipated. Getting these fasteners out, I actually had to cut these fasteners off eventually because the corrosion had affected them um mortally and so it just ended up you know taking a day and a half instead of half a day like i had been hoping but um yeah so that's uh that's what i spent uh my weekend up there doing and then i also spent uh, a little bit of time flying i had a couple of buddies who uh bought an extra extra 300 which is an aerobatic airplane there's a picture of it and so uh, I was able to carve some time out to go uh, flying with them, um, which is a, a tremendous amount of fun. Super light airplane, really powerful, um, and really strong. So my buddy that I went flying with said, you know, the, the best part of this airplane is um, you can do a whole lot of things in it and... Uh, not worry about breaking it because it's, it's so light and so strong that, you know, in some, uh, in most normal GA airplanes and even some, uh, aerobatic airplanes, they're strong, but it, you, you know, you can still get yourself in a position where if you get a, if you booger up a maneuver or something and you get the nose pointed down at the ground for too long, you can still bend or break something when you're pulling out of a, out of a maneuver. And this airplane, it's, it's pretty hard to put it in a position that, uh, you can actually break it. So that was a lot of fun. Went up and did some uh, accelerated stalls, did some like base to final accelerated stall simulations to show, you know, what happens uh, close to the ground. So we went up to, I don't know, five or 6,000 feet and did this stuff. But 
uh, you know, it was pretty eye-opening to see what would happen when, you know, if you're turning final and then somebody pops up in your vision in front of you and you haul back on the stick to see, uh, to try to avoid them, you know, to see how the airplane really reacts. That was pretty interesting. And then obviously did the compliment of um, pretty uh, standard uh, aerobatic maneuvers, I'd say. We didn't do anything real crazy, but we did loops and rolls and spins and some hammerhead turns and a couple of uh, kind of Cuban 8 type of uh, maneuvers. So that was a lot of fun. Sounds like it. Yep. And then yeah, got home again last week. And, uh, yeah, just been catching up on stuff at home, which I think I'm getting close to being caught up on now from being gone. Oh, good. How's the weather been there? Typical springtime weather in Wichita? Yeah, it's been okay. Um, real good weather at the end of last week and through the start of the weekend. And then the last four or five days, it's been kind of um, not stormy, but not very nice. Mm-hmm. Kind of overcla- overcast and drizzly type of not fun to be outside. No weather. tornadoes recently? Mm-mm. Nope, no tornadoes, no significant weather in the past few weeks. Yep. Great to have him back on. Yeah, it's really nice to have you back on. All right. Captain Nick. Captain Nick, I don't, um, I don't want to alarm you, but it looks like uh, you should probably move out of the way. It looks like an engine is about to start <laughs> out to suck you into it. If they turn the igniters on, I'm out of here. You are. for Yeah, definitely. Forever. That's an old movie I uh, took when I was still working at the back end of a Trent. Lovely Rolls Royce. Um, actually, uh, yeah, uh, I, I've got another tiny little video here. Um, I've been uh, out on the grass, which is so pleasant because, uh, you know, uh, the bowling club has now opened and um, out able to get a bit of practice uh, which is lovely I do enjoy that and uh, things going fine so uh, yeah it's uh, it's really good to be uh, you know seeing summer around the corner we've had some nice days Uh, been out with the dogs a lot so that's been good fun uh, but other than that, uh, very little indeed. Um, next week, actually, we've got our first proper match. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, then the season will get off a full swing and I'll be pretty busy. But uh, up to now, uh, not a great deal to uh, to do. I've had a couple of quiet weeks, so uh, certainly no news from that point of view. Okay, so we're watching the video that you're playing and sharing with us. And by the oh, way, it's just me out on the green practicing. Make sure yeah. you send those to me because I'd like to put a link, if it's okay with you, uh, oh, to sure. those. Um, and so that people that are listening uh, can watch uh, the bowling green and uh, some beautiful shots, I guess. Looks like they were beautiful shots. I don't know much about well, the game. Yeah, but. it took me all afternoon to get those, you know. <laughs> okay. Cut. We'll retake. Yeah, let's try that again. Yeah. Uh, wow, that's that's pretty pretty interesting. All right. Was that real grass or fake grass? Oh, uh, that's real. That's yeah. All right. Yeah. Do you want to? While we're still uh, talking with you, do you want to cover the cover art from the last episode? Oh yeah. Um, not a lot. Uh, was that last one? 
No, it's not the last one. No, the last it's not. one no, was. No, it's not it. Nope. Sorry. That's, that's right. The, the one before. No, nope, she's going to find it and uh, <laughs> pop, pop it in there while she's doing that. Or I, I should say, whilst she's doing that, um, I guess I can talk about what I've been up to. And I am not sure I even know myself. I've been doing this uh, pick up trips and fly them as I go kind of thing. And uh, we recorded last Thursday. So um, let's see. We ha- I flew uh, on Friday. Um, where did I go? I went to, oh, that's right. I picked up, inadvertently picked up a turn to Myrtle Beach and back, but that worked out okay. The weather was nice and Myrtle Beach is not too far away from Atlanta. So I did that, um, in the, uh, in the, uh, late afternoon and evening. Then on Saturday and Sunday, I did my, a lot of singing. They had a couple of extra special confirmation masses. And so I ended up singing at seven <laughs> masses last weekend. And then I flew a, um, a flight on Monday, a little Gainesville, um, Florida and back turn. And then on Tuesday I did a Charlotte. Oh, I, uh, picked up a little turnaround. I, I deadheaded to Charlotte and then picked up an airplane that had had some maintenance issues and, uh, they had a one-time permit to fly, uh, the airplane back to Atlanta. And then, uh, our Atlanta maintenance was going to start working hard on fixing several issues with it. And, uh, we ended up uh, getting back a couple of hours later than I had anticipated, got back kind of late, uh, on Tuesday night. And, uh, yeah. And then I had Wednesday off and then this morning I ended up uh, dead head, no flying up to Chattanooga, Tennessee, and then deadheading back. So a nice little That's a easy short flight, eh? turn. Yes, very short flight. Twenty three minutes, I believe, was the actual oh, flight yeah. time from Atlanta to uh, uh, Chattanooga. And uh, that's it. So I've been doing these little mostly turns, what we call them, or out and backs, or whatever you want to call it. Just one day little trips where you go somewhere and then you fly back. And uh, that's it. And I'm planning on picking up at least, I hope I'll pick up at least one more um, turn and that'll get me up to my trigger point for getting uh, a full uh, double pay for the first flight that I, first trip that I flew earlier this month. And uh, if not, that's okay too. Uh, Still going to be a a reasonably normal month as far as flying and pay for me is concerned. And uh, I plan on doing the typical singing over this weekend and um, probably, yeah, I'll be able to put the or publish the show on Monday, May 1st. That will reset our storage on our media server. And uh, because there's not enough room for me to upload this show that we're recording right at the moment, um, we've run out of room for uh, April. So May 1st, we'll publish this thing and that'll be it. That's all I can say about what I've been doing. And, oh, I did see, um, Steve Horn today. Um, That's the, so cool. how I got here, um, yeah. guy that, uh, produces jazz, those, music, yeah, jazz music in the background and has the nice stories about people he's flying with and how they got to where they are and, uh, told him uh, that we missed those 
Liz. Mm-hmm. And yeah, uh, he told me to make sure I said hi to you and the rest of the crew. Mm-hmm. Uh, he happened to be in Atlanta. Still flying um, boxes. Going um, home to uh, Michigan. And um, yeah, he's uh, he's still flying boxes. Okay. Like I yeah. like purple. or hauling boxes. Acme purple. Yeah, Acme yeah. purple boxes. Yeah. Um, so cool. it was nice to see Steve. He just happened to reach out to me this morning and said, "Are you in Atlanta anytime soon?" And I said, "Yeah, I'll be there like in an hour." So was able to run by and uh, say hi to him before I drove home. And got the right cover art now. It. Okay, now we have the right cover art, Captain Nick. Oh, there we go. Fort Flutterdale Formation Team. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Very. Well, I especially like uh, that uh, airplane over there on the right side of the frame. Um, well, the one with the forward swept wings. Yeah, the forward swept wing model. Well, before I messed about with it, it actually had uh, X wings. Oh. So it had a pair of forward swept and a pair of aft swept. Oh. Wings. So, this is uh, the problem with uh, AI uh, artwork in that uh, it has a good idea, but it's far from perfect. And uh, indeed, that I, I had to mess about with almost every airplane in that frame to mm. make sure it looked vaguely like a real airplane because uh, it it has it didn't really understand why airplanes look like had wings on at funny angles and tail planes on at funny angles in fact it's still not perfect but there you go but uh no that was based on uh, the fact that uh fort lauderdale flooded and someone came up with that idea for the show title so uh i fed in all the information we had on uh airplanes flying from flooded airports and that's what it came up with so i thought that was quite amazing did you have to specify in the in the um prompts uh like mist coming from or spray yeah i started off with josh just asking for a flooded airport Mm -hmm. and uh with lots of airplanes on it and uh it that's what it came back with but didn't look nearly exciting enough so then i sort of amplified it so by saying crashing waves and spray and mm-hmm. other stuff. And uh, that actually looks more like a beach scene than an airport, but uh, mm-hmm. it looked pretty good, so Close I thought enough. I'll stick with that. Yeah, with all the airplanes, I immediately thought that's got to be an airport. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Very yeah, nice. it is uh, very impressive, though. And where is the uh, show number? In the mist. In the mist. Ah, have oh. you not spotted it? No, it's, somewhere in the mist. It's quite big, and it's mm-hmm. embedded in the spray uh, yeah. on the right-hand side of that yeah. big wave. Uh, so, oh, I think behind the forward swept wing jet. Yes, uh, sort of in that yeah, gap, in you can yeah, see yeah. the the double six in there. And if you look uh, back, yeah, see it, it goes five double six, and then you can see the APG. Gotcha. But uh, sometimes I do it. It very big so that it's uh, harder to actually zo- zoom in on it. Yeah. That Liz got it straight away. She oh. uh, she knows my tricks. Yeah, she's one right. smart lady, isn't she? <laughs> <laughs> All right. That was a good one, Nick. Yep. Great one. All right. Coffee Fund. Your way to support our show financially. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I'll take some. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh, yeah, that Java. Love the Java and the Java Jive. Jeff Smith did that for us. Thank you, Jeff. 
Um, so, uh, as I mentioned, a way to support the show financially, the Coffee Bar Club, Coffee Fund Cadre, and uh, since the last episode, uh, we have um, someone who contributed to... Liz, you got that... Uh, oh, yeah, sorry. Coffee. I'm talking to Nick. I'm sorry. <laughs> hey. Don't pay attention to Nick right now. It's me. It's I'm. It's my turn. I know. I'm sorry. That's <laughs> All right. Since the last episode, we have Jeffrey Elliott Howell uh, giving us a nice contribution via the Coffee Fund Classic method. And uh, the other way to support the show is via Patreon. You can become a patron of the show. And we have two new producers. Mm-hmm. We have Mark Anderson, uh, who I... Uh, am understanding is not related to Captain Nick, at least directly in a familial way. And uh, David Campbell, uh, both new producers, as I said. So if you want to become uh, a patron of the show or just be fart of, uh, fart, part of our Coffee Fun Cadre, please head over to airlinepilotguide.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. And we will too. Okay, we're going to go straight to the old pilots plane tales straight straight up to the plane tail and uh, the title of this week's episode is straighten up and fly right the old pilots plane tales straighten up and fly right as i write this tale it's st george's day the painter and saint of jolly old england I might point out that St. George wasn't even English. He was either a Greek-Roman soldier and a member of the Praetorian Guard, or possibly a notorious 4th century Arian bishop known for exacting onerous taxes. Either way, the story of him slaying a Libyan dragon that was terrorising the city of Selene only appeared in the 12th century courtesy of the Archbishop of Genoa and it achieved everlasting fame in the 15th century translation of The Golden Legend by William Caxton, who even named the dragon Ascalon, after the Levantine city now part of Israel. There is an aviation link here, as Winston Churchill named his personal wartime transport aircraft an Avro York C Mark I Ascalon. I digress. The subject of today's tale doesn't go back that far, only to 1922, and I came across the repercussions of it first when I was learning to glide, but more importantly when I was being prepared by my flying instructor for my first solo cross-country adventure in a venerable Cessna 150 Aerobat. I was 28 hours and 15 minutes into a flying scholarship course paid for by the RAF that would gain me my private pilot's license. With only around 8 hours solo flying, I was about to set off on my first solo cross-country which would take me to the motor racing circuit at Thruxton and then on to Shoreham by sea and finally back to Fair Oaks. In my inside pocket, I had a form that had to be signed by officials at both airfields certifying that I had successfully landed without crashing. I was 18 years old. 
Now, this isn't a story about me dodging low clouds and struggling to find Shoreham, despite it being on the coast and marked by a huge chimney that could be seen for miles, but the advice given to me by my instructor. Once you reach Woking, pick up the southwestern railway line from Waterloo and then branch right at Basingstoke onto the Andover line, or you'll end up in Exeter. And whatever you do, keep it on your left. It was that last bit of advice that brought to my mind the little I knew about the rules of the air. The Rules of the Air and Air Traffic Control Arrangement of Rules, Third Amendment, were, in 1970, only three years old, and had some important gems for a budding pilot like me, such as... When flying over a congested area, I should fly at a height as would enable the aircraft to alight clear of the area and without danger to persons or property on the surface, in the event of a failure of a power unit, or when two aircraft are approaching head-on or approximately so in the air and there is a danger of collision, each shall alter their course to the right, and the one that my instructor was referring to, the right-hand traffic rule. Straighten up and fly right. Straighten up and stay right. Straighten up and fly right. Cool down, Papa, don't you blow your top. Fly right. This stated that an aircraft which is flying within the United Kingdom in sight of the ground and following a road, railway, canal or coastline or any other line of landmarks shall keep such a line of landmarks on its left. For reasons that defeat me, the rule goes on to give an exemption stating, provided that this rule shall not apply to a helicopter following the motorway M4 on a route from West Drayton to Osterley Lock. Yeah, don't ask me, I've no idea. So armed, I safely completed my navigational task and the course, without any thought to what might have happened in the past to give rise to the right-hand traffic rule. Until now, that is. Let me take you back to the birth of commercial aviation in Europe after the First World War. Since 1919, the French airline, La Compagnie des Grands Express Ariane, had been flying a simple route system that connected the Paris airport Le Bourget with Lausanne and Geneva in Switzerland and Croydon Airport in London using the Farman F-60 Goliath. The Goliath started life as a proposed heavy bomber and initial testing was underway when the war ended. Rather than waste their investment, Farman realised that the aircraft could be redesigned as an airliner. The big boxy fuselage was altered to accommodate up to 14 passengers and large windows fitted to afford those brave enough to risk early air travel a pleasant view of the passing countryside. The wings of this large biplane were of a simple rectangular construction and it was powered by a pair of French Samson, Renault or Lorraine engines affixed to the top of the lower wing. Farman was quick to get the Goliath into service and made a number of publicity flights, but he was hampered by the wartime ban on civil flying that was still in place. 
He got around the restrictions by landing at RAF Kenley whilst all his passengers were uniformed military pilots with orders in hand. The demonstration flights were all a success, with the F-60 achieving an altitude of over 20,000 feet, and it took six passengers plus a ton of freight from Paris to Kufa in Senegal, 2,800 miles away, via Casablanca and Mogador. The Farman aircraft became popular with emerging airlines in Europe, but so too was the de Havilland DH-18A, a British-designed single-engine biplane. Powered by a Napier Lion, the DH-18A had engine mounts and undercarriage that were improved from the earlier DH-18 and could house eight passengers within an enclosed cabin. One of the airlines operating this particular model of aircraft was Daimler Airway, a subsidiary of the Birmingham Small Arms Company that motorcycle aficionados will recall made the fabulous BSA Gold Star, a 500cc single. It was amongst the fastest bikes of the 1950s, taking first, second, third, fourth and fifth places in the 1954 Daytona Beach Race. Daimler Airways operated the de Havilland aircraft on the Croydon to Paris route until it could take delivery of the larger 10-seater DH-34. As previously mentioned, Grand Express was operating the same route, albeit originating from Paris. The scene was therefore set, and I have no doubt that the astute listeners amongst you will already be speculating on what befell the Daimler Airway mail flight departing Croydon on the 7th of April 1922 and the Grand Express aircraft that left Le Bourget on the same day just after noon. In the de Havilland DH-18 was Lieutenant R. Duke and a boy steward, Hesterman, whilst the Goliath was being flown by Monsieur Mir, accompanied by a mechanic and three passengers, two Americans and a Frenchman, named Borrier. The weather was marginal, with low cloud giving forth a light drizzle and rain from above, meeting a murky fog below, and since instrument flying was yet to be devised, both pilots were struggling to stay visual with the ground so that they could navigate. I should take a moment now to explain why the British drive on the left side of the road and the French on the right. Imagine for a moment you are riding your horse in the Middle Ages and you want to defend yourself with your sword against strangers you pass on the road. Most people, being right-handed, gave themselves the best opportunity to swing their weapons by riding on the left. This rule appears to go back as far as Roman times, as we've discovered that they drove their carts and wagons and even marched on the left. This rule of the road was officially sanctioned in 1300 AD when Pope Boniface VIII declared that all pilgrims travelling to Rome should keep to the left. It was the arrival of large wagons, where a driver sat on the rear left horse or ox to keep the whip hand aligned with the middle of the team that made driving on the right easier. 
This became commonplace in North America with its large open spaces, but not Britain. Here the drivers sat on seats, attached to their smaller wagons made for the narrower lanes, and it was better to drive sitting on the right, keeping the whip hand free. Indeed, in 18th century London, a law was passed to ensure that all traffic on London Bridge drove on the left to reduce collisions. This rule was incorporated into the Highway Act of 1835 and was adopted throughout the British Empire. You can blame France's move to the right side of the road on Napoleon. In earlier times, the aristocrats had priority on the left, and peasants had to move over to the right. After the revolution in 1792, he decreed that all traffic should keep to the common side, the right. Back to 1922, Pilots of the day, most of whom survived the rigours of military flying in the First World War, recognised the dangers of following landmarks and meeting someone coming the other way, so they had devised informal practices to avoid collisions based on the rules of the road. This meant that because French drivers stayed on the right side of the road, their pilots likewise stayed to the right of a feature that they were following. The same was being done in England, but nobody had yet realised that there was a problem because English cars drove on the left side of the road. Thus, Lieutenant Duke and Monsieur Mir were flying in opposite directions, but both were on the same side of the feature they were following, the main road through Grand Villiers in Picard to Paris. The weather being poor, both aircraft were also flying just below the overcast, putting them at the same altitude, struggling to see ahead and concentrating on their navigation. Eyewitnesses described regularly seeing aircraft flying towards London, and on this day they could hear a big machine, but it remained hidden in the fog and rain until a Goliath suddenly emerged from a bank of cloud about 500 feet above them. Hardly had it come into view when a second aircraft burst from the cloud, heading in the opposite direction and directly towards it. There was no time to wonder before a dreadful noise of the two machines crashing reached them, and they watched a shower of debris flutter down as the airplanes were turned into a mess of smashed wood and twisted metal. A wing from the Goliath had been torn from the fuselage and hit a nearby building, whilst the rest fell into a field. The de Havilland hit the ground near it, making a crater five feet deep. Rescuers rushed to help, but initially all they found were the broken bodies of the unfortunate crew and passengers in what remained of the Goliath's luxurious cabin, which they struggled to pull from the wreckage before the fire took hold. There was but one occupant of the British aircraft, but nearby they found the body of the young steward who had been thrown clear and was, miraculously, alive but unresponsive. Sadly, he would succumb without ever regaining consciousness. Newspapers around the world carried headlines such as Americans die in French air crash 
Christopher Bruce Yule and his wife killed on London Paris airplane route were on their honeymoon. French and British planes in collision in a fog. Six are dead and one dying. Frederick Guest, the British Secretary of State for Air, on behalf of the government, extended his condolences to the French Under Secretary of State for Air and the Chairman of Dame La Hire Limited in this short message. In my own name and that of the Air Council, I offer you my deepest sympathy on the fatal air collision which occurred yesterday. The only accident of this kind in the history of air transport between Great Britain and France. This was not the world's first mid-air collision, which actually occurred in 1910 at the Milano Aereo Internationale between, again, a British pilot and a Frenchman. This time, the British Army captain rammed the French farmer in the rear, and both pilots survived. The Picardy accident was the world's first mid-air collision between airliners, and it highlighted the need for international cooperation and an agreed set of rules that would apply to every nation. As a result, seven major European companies, including the two airlines involved, plus representatives from the Air Ministry and the number of senior pilots, met at Croydon Airport to discuss a standardised set of rules for international air travel. Amongst the resolutions passed was the right-hand traffic rule. Straighten up and fly right. Straighten up and stay right. Straighten up and fly right. Cool down, Papa, don't you blow your top. Fly right. Plus other measures to improve air safety for the travelling public. These included a universal definition of who had the right of way in the air, something similar to that that existed on the world's oceans. These rules stated that flying machines shall give way to airships, gliders and balloons. Airships shall give way to gliders and balloons, and gliders shall give way to balloons. Balloons, of course, just give way. When two aircraft are converging, the aircraft that has the other on its right shall give way. In addition, there was agreement that future airliner designs would ensure that the pilots had good visibility to give them a clear view ahead and that all airliners would be fitted with radios. The accident also proved to be the catalyst that spawned the creation of the world's first airways system to ensure that separation between aircraft was maintained and clearly defined air routes were introduced in Belgium, France, the Netherlands and the United Kingdom. Both airlines continued to operate successfully as aircraft accidents and incidents were commonplace at the time, but mid-air collisions were rare, and the likelihood of a similar occurrence was considered unlikely. Two years later, along with three other airlines, Daimler Airways merged to form the enormously successful Imperial Airways, which would in turn give birth to the British Overseas Airways Corporation, BOAC, and then with British European Airways to become British Airways, a well-known company that operates to this day. In France, Ronde Express combined with others to form Air Union, 
which would ultimately join another four airlines to become Air France. I love it. Love the music, too. So, <laughs> good, the, what did the French have against the British? Uh, you know, the oh, running know, into their airplanes. Uh, they remember Agincourt, which is something that we had over them, and probably Waterloo as well. Okay. Well, that was interesting trivia regarding left and right uh, driving and flying. Uh, <laughs> yes. Well, not just trivia, uh, I mean, but... You know. there, there was an element of trivia in there because yeah. uh, uh, when I realized, when I looked at what I've constructed about the formation of the uh, um, right-hand roll, mm -hmm. uh, I realized that it wasn't quite long enough. So I, I padded it out a little bit. Oh, okay. I must have so What I got from this is lefty-loosey, righty-tighty. No, <laughs> that's the wrong <laughs> lesson to learn Yeah, from this. I'm sure there's an element of that in there somewhere. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, that's, that was really, really nice. Thank you, Captain Nick. Uh, that was a fun escapade into some old-fashioned rules, yeah, and balloons. Yeah, watch out, balloons. And I love that. Just uh, give way. Straighten up and fly right or whatever. Uh, yeah, that's uh, um, Nat King Cole. He's hmm. one of his first major hits, I believe, uh, that brought him to the you know eye of the public, so... I'm sure you get bonged about that, even though it's only a tiny uh, little bit of it. I'm so used to it. It doesn't matter. <laughs> well, Jeff needs to get bonged every now and yeah, then. Yeah, I do need to get bonged every now and then. <laughs> you should do. You see, it reduces the blood pressure. All right. 25 after the hour is a two-hour mark. I'm looking at my clock uh, flashing on my microwave, which is nowhere Nothing close to reality. Let me look you at the have a watch clock on, on the. Right? Oh, I see. Now. Well, if okay. you know how to reset that microwave clock, you're a better man than I, I am. I do. I've had to do it a few times. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll worry about that later. Um, okay. Feedback. Um, I think now it's um, time for your feedback bumper. It's time for us to play the feedback bumper. If I can just find it, I think I found it. Here we go. Captain, incoming message. Let's start with this first piece of feedback from Jamie. And it says, greetings. Enjoy listening to lo-fi. I didn't really have any idea what that meant. And then enjoy listening to live ATC. Yeah. Well, now you can have both at once. Lofiatc.com. And so I thought, okay, I have no idea. I'm completely out of it, but let me see what this is all about. So uh, let me hit the play button here. And we'll... Okay. Oh, is that not coming through? No, I'm sorry. I have to share it on this one. <laughs> I can't do this because I get, I'm getting the audio from that machine and I'm getting the video from this machine. Okay. Well, just let me explain what is going on here. Uh, apparently, lo-fi is... I looked it up. I had to look it up because I didn't. I, I've heard of hi-fi, and I'm thinking, well, lo-fi to me means low fidelity, which means crappy audio, like old-time AM radio, 
that kind of thing. But apparently lo-fi means something else in today's younger people. And I think it's like a kind of a, a chill laid back sometimes related to hip hop um, and, and, but kind of a low energy kind of a hip hop thing. And the ATC part of it, of course, is liveatc.net, which we use quite a lot to play audio from uh, air traffic control and pilot communications. And so the people that created this site, Lo-Fi ATC, merged the two together. So they have this thing uh, here. Let me see if I can. Uh, I'm going to hit it again. It's coming off my computer speakers here. But. This feed is coming from Narita International Airport. And if you want to hear air traffic control from another airport and listening to this lo-fi music, this is the place that you should go. So again, Jamie, thank you for kind of introducing me, maybe not all of us, but me to this concept, lo-fi, ATC. Oh, hey, wake up, people. Don't, don't go to sleep. I guess this music is making everybody go to sleep and a combination of that and my voice. Now, that that might be <laughs> something that I could uh, – my exit plan for um, – <laughs> I can I can have a website where I'm playing that kind of music in the background and then I can just start talking and then put people to sleep and probably get paid good money for that. Anyway, so um, – Fellow co-hosts, have you ever heard of the term lo-fi before? Never. Oh, well, only in the way you said, Jeff, and yeah. that it was the opposite to hi-fi. Right. How about you, Nick C? You youngster, no, you. No. Okay. Well. I bet Steph knows all about it. Yeah, I'm sure Steph knows all about lo-fi. She probably listens to it on her. No, wait. No, she doesn't. She listens to Kakalaki on her, on her radio in her, in her car. Um, anyway, so yeah, when we first got this piece of uh, feedback from Jamie, uh, Liz said, yeah, I don't really, let's skip that. In fact, we were supposed to, it was in the lineup last week. Let's go ahead and skip that one. I don't think anybody understands what this is about. (laughs) So I, I decided to dip my toe into it and figure out what the heck it is that I'm listening to. But I think it's pretty kind of a cool concept to have kind of as background music and like, you know, you're at work and you want to listen to some chill tunes and uh, also some air traffic controllers. And as I said, um, as long as it is a an airport that uh, liveatc.net uh, covers in their network, uh, you can listen to what's good. And I, uh, I other- recognize that controller, you know. Did you? Really? Yeah, the wow. Narita controller, oh. very distinctive voice. Oh, the other interesting thing, when I first pulled this up, uh, it, it was at ATL, Atlanta. And so I'm sitting there, you know, listening to that, and I'm hearing somebody cross, you know, cross runway nine left, uh, join Lima to parking and all that kind of stuff. And I'm thinking, I wonder if this is a recording or if this is actually live ATC. So I pulled up on... Um, a website called Mosaic, uh, where you can go and and pull up various airports around the at least the U.S. maybe worldwide. I'm not sure, and and I so I'm looking at this presentation of traffic on the airport, and sure enough, it was live. It was real time. I'm thinking, oh look at wow. that! That's who 
cheetah said to cross that runway, and I can see it crossing the runway. I think that's pretty cool. Technology is amazing, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Well, those air traffickers could send me to sleep anytime, so uh, <laughs> I think it'll work very well. Yeah, except for JFK, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. Because they yell at you there. Okay, it looks like I have to <laughs> load up something here from uh, – oh, yeah, Becky. Okay. Um, let me uh, quickly do that. And uh, that's from – this from Becky. What's really behind these serious U.S. incidents? And this is from um, Mentor Mentor Pilot uh, YouTube video. And uh, Becky says, around time point 2050, he talks about hand flying and his view of when it should be done. I'd be interested in APG's thoughts about if there are procedures to do prior to or if there are pre- procedures to accomplish prior to hand flying etc thank you again for the only illness i never want cured which of course is the apg syndrome thank you beck becky thank you becky let me try that again there we go and uh here we go we're gonna play last this. couple of decades as the automatics have improved the emphasis might have sometimes fallen too far towards the automation side and the flying skills might have been a little too little emphasized. You think? The guidance that the FAA has recently sent out to operators aim to highlight this fact and to give airlines a push towards practicing more hand flying but here I also have a few words of caution. Hand flying an aircraft with passengers on board can be done, but only after a careful briefing so that both pilots are fully prepared for what's about to happen. It should be done in appropriate weather into airports the pilots are familiar with and with low traffic density away from terrain. A proper threat and error management brief should be done before and the briefing should include how to return to automatic flight if the need should arise. So why is that so important then? Well, most automatic systems are built to be a huge help in lowering stress and workload levels, increasing situational awareness and navigational accuracy. If we decide not to use those systems with passengers on board, we need to make absolutely sure that the safety margins are maintained and that we don't just dive into a manual raw data approach without the other pilot being fully aware and prepared for it. Many accidents and incidents have been caused by the mismanagement of hand flying and this is why I personally am a proponent of keeping complicated hand flying training inside the simulators and at least always keep the flight directors working when hand flying the actual aircraft online. Because what we don't want is for these recent incidents to be replaced with many more new ones caused by bad preparations and poor judgment. This recent guidance from the FAA is nothing really new, by the way. They have been actively pushing for more hand-flying practice since at least back in 2016. As has the APG. Now, as for airlines choosing so-called Vogue pilots, uh, I don't really know what to say. But what I can say is that I have been involved in flight training for the last 17 years of my career. When new pilots join an airline, what we want to see is that they have the skills and the competence that they need, that they respond well to training, and that they are people who can work well with others, including pilots, cabin crew, dispatchers, and everyone else. The color of their skin, their social and personal preferences, gender, or their politics should have absolutely nothing to do with that. Yeah, agree with that. Um, 
obviously I played it a little bit longer than uh, I guess he was doing some maybe quest uh, answering some questions from his audience. By the way, great channel. You should uh, check out Mentor Pilot, um, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes so you can uh, subscribe to his amazing channel. And uh, he is a very accomplished um, airline pilot and uh, trainer. And uh, again, mentor, M-E-N-T-O-U-R, pilot. And uh, so I guess what Becky wanted us to address was the um, question he must a have had. A company can, oh, of course, have well, goals. Liz, you wanted to play that again? Yes, no, sorry, I hit the wrong button. <laughs> oh, okay. Just like sorry, Zach that was my said. Bad. That was my well, bad. I think she'd rather hear him than me speak. I didn't say so, that. Yeah, well, you didn't have to say it, Liz. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, so the, um, answer that, um, Becky wanted us to kind of comment about was his, I guess he was answering the question about hand flying. And I think for the most part, I agree with, I mean, I, I think making sure that the other crew member crew members that you're flying with, uh, making sure that they understand what it is that you're doing and what you're thinking about doing and, you know, kind of keeping that open communication going on in the cockpit is extremely important, no matter whether you're talking about automatics or hand flying an airplane or any other thing that you're doing. Even when the uh, automation is um, implemented, uh, you need to um, you know, make sure that the other person knows exactly what it is that you are at least intending to do with the automation so that you're all on the same page and in the loop and all that kind of stuff. So, um, but so I agree that if you're going to do some hand flying in an airliner with passengers on board, that uh, that you make sure that you're clear about what you're about to do, um, and it's it's one of those things that you know you just have to be think about it practically. Um, if it's if it you're flying into an area with a lot of traffic and uh, kind of demanding approaches and high terrain and and weather and any of these things or a combination of all of them, you. You need to think, well, maybe this is not the right time for me to practice my hand flying skills in the airliner with passengers on board. Uh, but if you're in a situation where the traffic is relatively light, it's not one of those um, demanding kind of airports to fly into, and uh, you've briefed it well, um, fly, you know, hand flying the airplane is, is great experience. And I think it's much better experience than actually doing it in the simulator because when you're actually in the airplane itself it's just a little bit different almost everything is from from the uh, uh experience that you have in the in the simulator and um you know having a plan for how you're going to re-implement automation as well is a very good idea and uh, but and I, we've talked about this a lot. You know, he mentions that the FAA has been pushing this for this for uh, for a, quite a long time, and I would kind of disagree a little bit. I think the NTSB has been pushing for uh, enhancing or practicing our hand flying skills or manual flying skills for much much longer than the FAA has, and they've been urging the FAA to implement some kind of practice where you're actually in the air, real airplane with real passengers hand flying the airplane just to prep. And, um, but they, they finally came around a few years back with the, uh, with the, uh, uh what is it called? The, uh, uh, or special, what it was the SAFO stand for something for operators, safety, something rather for, op anyway, basically put out the, 
actual official guidance that we should be uh, trying to practice hand flying, manual flying skills as much as possible because we're kind of lo- losing those skills. And we've talked about the, uh, on our show that it's kind of a vicious circle or cycle because the automation on airplanes these days is so good that when you turn them off and you're manually flying the jet, it's it's going to be difficult to kind of be as good as the automation is. And then you're with somebody and you want to impress that person that you know how to fly an airplane well. So you may not want to do that because it might be kind of embarrassing that your skills are a little rusty. And because you're not doing it, then your skills are getting even worse because you're not practicing those skills. If those, Safety alerts sense. for operators. Safety alert for operators. Thank you, Liz. Uh, yeah, they put out a SAFO uh, or SAFO a few years back regarding that. So, um, yeah, I think for the most part, I would agree uh, with uh, with what he's saying in this video. What do you guys think? Yeah, it's interesting, Jeff. Uh, from experience, uh, when guys knew they were coming up for a simulator and they were looking at the expected brief and they realized that there was a portion that involved hand flying to uh, – regain or improve or just test their skills uh, they would often ask to hand fly the real airplane in preparation for the simulator which is kind of backwards really what you ought to be doing is practicing in the simulator (laughs) so that you can competently fly in the air not the other way around so uh, that I always found interesting because it means we've got the emphasis wrong we should be taking the pressure off people in the simulator so they can feel confident to practice so that when they get in the airplane they don't feel that they have to now practice to get back in the simulator if you see what i mean um partly that and the other thing is i really do agree with his uh, suggestion that you do it appropriately in the right environment and more importantly with the right briefing uh there was a great tendency for people to go oh, look, we've just come through the cloud layer now. It looks really nice ahead. I'm going to hand fly it from now on, which was not part of the briefing at all. So you just thought of that, and now you're going to go, yep. And uh, and what's more, I'm going to take off. Uh, I'm going to hand fly the airplane and take off the flight directors and use raw data, um, which is an interesting thing to do in the Airbus in particular because you're not allowed to have one pilot on a flight director and the other pilot on raw data. So if you're going to be the pilot flying and you're going to take the flight directors out and hand fly, it means the other pilot's going to lose his flight directors as well. He's going to have to deselect them so you don't end up with situation having one set of flight directors on and not the other, um, which is an interesting point. You have sort of forced that upon the pilot monitoring. He might not be feeling as bright and competent as you are, uh, and consequently, you've now taken away some of his ability to monitor the accuracy of your flying because uh, he is perhaps a bit below par, and he's going to struggle a bit to do his job. Not only that, when you are hand-flying the airplane, there's a great uh, amount of workload goes onto the pilot monitoring. Uh, because he's going to do a lot more actions around the cockpit, uh, which actually diverts his attention from monitoring you. So he's going to be backing you up by selecting headings and altitudes that you would normally do yourself while you were directing the autopilot. Now you're hand-flying, you're commanding him to do that. So he's 
uh, up at the FCU dialing stuff up for you, as well as doing his job work in the radio and trying to monitor your flying skills. Um, and see, so and you don't have a lot of the backups that you would normally have uh, from your instrumentation. So it's an interesting dilemma. If you haven't briefed it and prepared for it and confirmed with your companion there that he's completely happy uh, that uh, this is a good situation for you to do that, then you've rather dropped him in it, which mm -hmm. I don't think is very good practice. So I see exactly where our mentor pilot, and by the way, I do love his channel. I referred to it lots in the past and watch it with great interest. He's got a great accent. He's a his great um, ability, and uh, he must have a good team behind him. He produces great visuals uh, on uh, his channel. So it, it's a fun channel to watch and very um, um, correct, and, uh, you know, it's got some fantastic information in it. Yeah, a lot higher um, than 50% but... accuracy on his show. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how they do that. How do you know. do that? I don't know. It's really hard, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'm with you. I... I really believe that uh, hand flying is an essential skill accurate capable hand flying is an essential skill for any pilot uh, who intends to do it for money uh, a commercial pilot uh, i also feel that man managing the aircraft through the automation is also an essential skill yep. so you need to balance uh, at the moment uh, often the balance is too too far towards managing the automatics than it is towards uh, your hand flying ability and i think that balance needs to be corrected but we don't need to go overboard uh, there are times and places when it's appropriate to do that uh, and times when it's not bearing in mind that in a lot of situations it would actually be illegal to fly the aircraft without the autopilot yeah i think there's a difference between and you pointed this out um you know, hand flying the aircraft and then like hand flying and raw data, you know, getting rid of the flight director system. I think most of the time when I say we're hand flying or manual, manual flight, we're, we're leaving the flight director system engaged. Uh, but you're just, instead of using automation to, you know, bank the airplane and descend and climb and that kind of thing, you're, you're actually doing it yourself with your hands. Um, and, uh, just an anecdote. When I first started flying in the airlines back in the 90s, early 90s, when you went in the simulator, I mean, 90% of what you were doing in there was not with the autopilot on. It was all manual oh, flying. Oh, interesting. And then it kind of slowly transitioned about half and half. And nowadays, you know, if you turn the auto, autopilot off in the simulator, people think you're like crazy. What are you doing? You know, like, why are you turning well, the automation yeah. off? Yeah, well, you, you risk the... A problem of making a mistake hand flying that you wouldn't have had if you were using the autopilot, and I've seen that uh, that is common on line checks. You're not obliged to hand fly during a line check, an actual check in in a real aircraft on a line flight. Uh, so guys will put the autopilot in as soon as they're able to after takeoff, and they won't take it out until. <laughs> five seconds before the wheels touch well and the other thing uh, is back in the day in the 90s and flying the 727 there wasn't all of this real-time monitoring of all the flight parameters constantly being sent to the mother ship um, and constantly logging and evaluating everything you're doing so in this world that we're living in now it's like 
I'm going to leave the automation on because it's going to do a much better job of hitting all these parameters that I have to, you know, shoot for, you know, it, it's just kind of a, it's a two edged sword, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Um, we should be out there, you know, practicing our skills when it's appropriate and properly briefed, yep. but I can kind of see the hesitancy now. I mean, we have an app at Acme where it kind of tracks the, you know, my rate of rotation on takeoff. It uh, tracks my, you know, at what point, what altitude I was stabilized on an approach and what uh, my actual uh, height above touchdown was on this runway, where I actually touched down uh, beyond, you know, in the touchdown zone, um, how fast I'm taxiing. By the way, oh. I... If I if I get uh, violated for not violated but uh, flagged for anything <laughs> on my flight history, it's usually taxing quick, quick. a little bit yeah, higher. I get that. Then Alyssa, <laughs> if I get that, uh, then then what they recommend for for taxi speeds. Tim Van Ram has a typical Tim Van Ram. Uh, Tim Van Ram says a good hand job considered a nice compliment after flying by hand nicely. Is good hand? Oh, I see. Is good? <laughs> okay, let me try That's this a good again. Good hand job. Is Good hand job. Considered a nice compliment after flying by hand nicely. Absolutely, Tim. I say that all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Nixie has to go soon. Yeah. Does he want to go to number 12? Oh, yeah. Let's go to? to number 12. But stand by. I'm being asked by my Acme scheduling to take a look at something that I might, if I want to fly it. Ooh, no, I did not want to do that. Okay, good. I can ignore that. And let's move to uh, number twelve in the feedback. And then Nixie. Can. And then Nixie, you can uh, you can head off if you need to, or Nick, Nick A as well. And Liz and I can finish up. Um, let's see. This is from Sam. Uh, Sam Dawson, I believe. Yep. Um, RAF Forum Four One Four Volume Twelve um, is the title of his feedback. I'm listening to an old old pilot plane tales. And recently listened to your one about a spurious, spurious fire in an F-4. It got me thinking to my two fire events, both in the UH-60 helicopter. That's the Blackhawk, I believe. Uh, The first was a spurious fire like yours. The UH-60 had a photo fire detector that was known to give spurious false fires due to the sun shining through the engine cowling. Thus, step one of the bold items was turn in the direction of the fire and confirm the fire. Okay, that's interesting. The U.S. Army was re- retiring the UH-1. I think that was the Huey, right? So as an instructor, I had some senior officers who needed the UH-60 transition. I was teaching a colonel, and this hop consisted of instrument training. Since there was no autopilot, he gave me controls, the controls while he set up for an ILS. In the middle of his setup, a firelight eliminated. I stated, firelight, turning into the engine to confirm the fire. Almost every time we did this, the fire light went out. Before I could finish the sentence, the colonel reached up, grabbed the fire handle, and pulled it, shutting down the engine. <laughs> the wrong engine. Oh. He pulled the oh, handle without dude. confirming with me that it was the correct engine. That's a very crucial step. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm holding the right fire handle before I pull it. Um, okay. I was about to say some choice words, but remembered that I was a captain and my student was a colonel. I needed to choose my next sentence carefully. So I think I threw in, with all due respect, sir, dot, 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 
I gave him the controls, pushed the handle back in, and relit the engine. The firelight on the other engine went out even before I did this. The second was a real fire, but we never got a light. I returned from a mission in Iraq and on shutdown, my crew chief said over the intercom, Sir, call the fire department. I think there is a problem with the right engine. As the blades coasted down, all cockpit indications were normal. I called the fire department, shut down, got out, walked over to the right engine. The entire right engine cowling was glowing and radiating heat. Eventually, we found out that the engine recently arrived from depot maintenance was not put together by them correctly. At some point, it had come apart slightly, and the hot section was acting like a blowtorch. It was so hot that part of an I-beam melted. We were lucky. We landed when we did. The, that aircraft stayed in Kuwait for some time. They, didn't, um, they don't make spare I-beams as they never go bad unless an aircraft is totaled. So the Army had to wait for a break in the Sikorsky production line for one to be pulled off, which, of course, reminds me of another story, that of the Waddington effect. And then he gives us a link to that, and we'll have this all in our show notes so you can read the entire thing. We're not going to read the entire article, but essentially uh, we are talking about British biologist um, Conrad Hal Waddington performing uh, performed great groundbreaking research on aircraft maintenance during World War II. And uh, so basically the article, uh, well, Nick C., since you're an AMP mechanic, uh, kind of, would you kind of give us a, a, a gist of what the Waddington effect was and how it relates to uh, the way we are used to do maintenance and I guess in some uh, areas of aviation even today uh, do it the kind of the old way but the Waddington effect kind of in, enabled or um, brought into being a new way of looking at uh, how we do uh, maintenance and preventative maintenance and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so uh, like you said, Waddington is a was a geneticist, I think, but pressed into action kind of just as a scientist for the military during World War II. And uh, this uh, basically what this article goes over is the British Air Force, the Royal Air Force, I should say. Uh, sorry about that, Nick. Um, <laughs> they were having trouble with uh, availability of their aircraft during World War II. And so this guy started looking into basically researching ways to uh, increase um, aircraft availability due to maintenance. And uh, what he found was, what he found was oftentimes when they had an issue with um, aircraft, they would introduce more inspections and more maintenance to try to minimize the possibility of a, of an issue, I guess. And uh, they started looking at all the data and what they found was that the number of issues that popped up basically, right? Like unscheduled or unforeseen issues was the highest right out of maintenance. And then like that number kept dropping down. So um, as you'd go, as you'd go uh, every 10 hours, you know, the, the number of unforeseen uh, issues would decrease and decrease. And it, be, it, it was the lowest at 50 hours when they would start their cycle over again and, and, um, and basically do all this periodic maintenance. And so what uh, essentially what he came up with is that they were, creating more downtime for the aircraft with their 
inspections and repairs than they were actually avoiding. Interesting. So that wow. th that basically rolled into this whole new mindset of aircraft maintenance, uh, and which is what the airlines operate on now, and which is uh, I think called reliability centered maintenance. And basically, what they're doing is um, almost everything on condition versus on schedule. So, like in the GA world, we still do a lot of things on on schedule rather than on condition. And so, what that means is we've got a window, right? Either a calendar time window or a flight hours time window that we do certain things on. And uh, Mike Bush, the guy who wrote this article, is a big uh, proponent of reliability-centered maintenance or on-condition maintenance, which is basically doing um, a lot more thorough, less invasive inspections. And I know that seems kind of um, oxymoronic or a little weird to say, but he, you know, um, he's a big fan of doing things like uh, boroscope inspections, um, looking at the inside of the engine without taking the engine apart. He's uh, hesitant to do major surgery like taking cylinders apart or taking engines apart. And um, and basically what that drives towards is this approach of um, minimizing uh, invasive maintenance, which drives to minimizing maintenance-induced failures, right? So there's a lot of the things that we end up dealing with, in, at least in the GA world, are maintenance-induced failures, uh, which are basically issues that, would not have happened in the normal course of operation, but because some form of maintenance was completed, it then um, basically kicked off a failure. Uh, so, I, one of the important things about that I think you need that we need to keep in mind about um, it, it's a great concept, and I, I agree with a lot of it, and it's a lot of interesting uh, research and reading. Um, but you know, I, I do think that there is some level of um, competency or knowledge in the airlines that I don't think we'll ever get to in GA just because most of the time, you know, when you're dealing with airline workers, line maintenance workers, those guys are very highly trained on one specific aircraft or one specific system. So it's very easy for them to um, be highly knowledgeable on exactly what they're working because there's such a high volume of work for that specific uh, type or um system of aircraft in ga a lot of times you've got um, mechanics working on whatever comes into the shop right like they could be working on a cessna 150 one day and they could be working on a king air the next day or a, um you know there's it's a wide array of of systems so it's a lot generally it's a lot um wider breadth of knowledge and not quite as deep so that's basically the that's basically the the gist of this uh, Waddington article, and uh, you hear, you know, you'll hear a lot of one of the big pushes towards reliability centered maintenance or on condition maintenance is um, GA engine TBOs or time between overhauls. So most single engine pistons have a defined period that they can operate, and this kind of goes back to the service bulletin thing we were talking about earlier. Um, part one thirty five airplanes that operate for hire are I believe are mandated to stick to um, manufacturer published TBOs. So in other words, like the airplane that's in the engine that's in my airplane has a 1700 hour TBO. So that's continental motors saying 
this engine is good for 1700 hours, then it needs to be taken apart, inspected and overhauled, and then put back into service for another 1700 hours. Um, and what, you know, what we're kind of finding out is that the big killer for general aviation airplanes is, um, a lack of use or a lack of consistent use. So a lot of times corrosion will kill engines well before 1700 hours corrosion on camshafts on lifters on that sort of thing. Um, but if an, if an engine is flown regularly, it is, uh, pretty common for it to last well beyond, uh, the time between overhauls and, um, you know, the big kicker is when you rebuild an engine or you, you put a new engine into service, you kind of start, start the clock over back at the beginning. And uh, there will be talk of like bathtub curves, right? Like the highest probability of failure in an engine is um, right at the beginning. It's called infant mortality. Hmm. And the longer you run that engine, the less likely and less likely you have for a failure. And then basically that curve ends up looking like a bathtub. So it's called a bathtub curve, right? It starts on the left side, very high. And then it comes down as you start tracking to the right. And then it's low for a long, long time. And then at the end of life, when parts start wearing out, it starts going back up again. And you start getting more failures as parts wear out. The interesting aspect of that for general aviation airplanes is it's it's hard to define the right side. Um, like when we start traveling back up that curve, because so many people stick to the mandated time between overhauls from the manufacturer. So basically, we start with this curve that is a bathtub half of a bathtub curve, right? It starts high and comes down and goes low. And then we track low all the way, all the way until we hit TBO. And rather than venturing on into the unknown aspect where it might start increasing risk of failure, but it also might start, might continue to track level for a period longer. We then cycle back over to the beginning of the curve where we know that it's a high risk of Interesting. A failure. So that's that's kind of Mike Bush's big drive and, and a lot of on-condition proponents' big drive for um, altering mindset, I guess. That's absolutely fascinating, Nick. I it didn't is. know about that, but I do see the logic behind it. Uh, I, I guess it's why <laughs> we always used to be on guard as soon as an airplane came out of a hangar after a, a major jack. Yeah. Mm -hmm. be going, I really don't want this. We'd rather it had flown a few trips and everyone made sure everything worked mm -hmm. before I Let got somebody else do it. the functional check flight. Yeah, that's right. I'm not a test pilot. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, that is interesting there. And yeah. is it also uh, classic that if an airplane's going well, Nothing's wrong with it. It's just ticking along nicely. Why would you want to put it in the hangar and rip it apart and put it back together again when, you know, it was fine yesterday, particularly since, you know, what you say is that when it comes out of the hangar, it's going to go through a period where it's much more likely to have a fault until everything settles down again. Yeah, yeah. It. I, I kind of like the Wannington... Um, Research from World War II kind of reminds me of the uh, research they used to do on armoring airplanes, right? Like, it's a pretty common graphic that you'll see where they'll show, like, aircraft that return with battle damage, right? And they would have all this battle damage on the outside of the wings and the tail, and they would say, well, we need to up-armor those sections, right? That was like the that was like the immediate logical thought, is you need to up-armor those sections because that's where the most damage happens. And then when they dug into it, uh, deeper, you know, what they found out was that was the survivable 
uh, damage. So it actually wasn't as critical. And what they really needed to be focused on, focusing on were the areas that never came back with battle damage. Because that those were the areas that would cause the aircraft to go down in battle versus return to the to the airport. So interesting. Very interesting. I like that kind of outside the box or um yeah. roundabout type of thinking. Absolutely. Well thanks Nick for your very excellent uh, description of the Waddington effect. And uh yeah, we're, we're so happy that you were able to join us today. Um I'd like to, let's see, we're getting close. We're about the two and a half hour mark right now. And um, I'd like to hit some of these kind of funny things. Yes, I agree. Uh, And so, I mean, we have a lot of great feedback. We're not going to get to all of it for sure. Um, But I I like number 11. uh, Number 11, you're thinking? Yeah, why not? It's a quickie. Uh, It's a quickie. Yeah, this is from Peter. Uh, hello, crew. Listening to APG 565 and the Dixie versus Delta comment reminded me of the attached phonetic funny I spotted recently. And uh, so the phonetic funny is ha 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 ha. Scottish kid calling out the Wi Fi code in the cafe to his mate and shouts, Q for cucumber. <laughs> okay. Uh, he says, "What other deliberate or accidental phonetic oddities have you heard, other than Captain Nick's alternative phonetic alphabet from many shows ago? Uh, keep the green side down, unless it's the Northern Lights." Peter, uh, aka Sir Peter of Kent. I guess. Do you think he's really a knight? Oh yeah, most certainly. Yeah, I would say. Of course, we have knights listening to our our, our show. Well, the show's at night, so that I makes know, sense. Yeah, true. Um, any other deliberate or accidental phon- phonetic oddities, uh, Captain Nick? Well, people use old-fashioned ones regularly. You hear, you know, S for sugar, but people uh, just come up with weird ones. You know, you can. M for Mary and things, but all those kind of make sense. They're just using the wrong word. I don't think I've ever heard anything as funny as Q for Q. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. All right. Do um, you want to do? Um, do you want to do uh, thirteen? How about? Yes, that's quick. Thirteen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. This is from Mo. I wanted to thank you and Nick for your words of wisdom. Uh, I, he's talking to me, I guess, uh, I greatly appreciated your feedback. Um, once I take the leap, I would love to keep you updated on my journey. If that's okay. He was asking us about his hesitancy, reluctance to, uh, forge forward with his career goals and, in flying. And he said, regards Mo, uh, go ahead, Liz, not the bartender from the Simpsons. And I should also add, he is not uh, Mo, uh, one of the three Stooges. Mm-hmm. There. Okay. What are they doing? Uh, well, the three Stooges. <laughs> he's, That's what he's they leading do. him they, by his they nose. Put fingers up people's noses. That's just yeah. the thing, right? Okay. <laughs> we got to do Tony's uh, yeah, ironing video, I agree. too. I agree. Okay. Uh, let's see. Next item uh, 14. I'm going to uh, bail out of here, Jeff. Okay. Go get, uh, All right. Nick, go Bye, Nick. see you. See you next for, time. For our regards, best regards to your family, and uh, we'll see you again hopefully next time. All right. Thanks. Cheers, All right. So, um, oh, 
did I mention that I was? No, I did mention on the last show. Yeah, that you I did was on, on the last show. Yeah, Aviator Tony's uh, Squawk Ident podcast. And by the way, it's been published, and I put the link to that in the show notes for the last show. But Aviator Tony um, decided to send us some feedback, and I don't think really it has any. Yeah, I think it's no. self-explanatory. No, it's just, Let me just yeah. add this to the stream and hit play. Okay. 30 minutes to van time. And what am I doing? As a professional airline pilot, time is very critical. But I'm armed and ready. Here we go. Oh, yeah, look at that. Mmm. That 100% cotton is going to be smooth. Look at that. Now, I may not be a professional ironer like the Rickster. But I think I can hold my own. Back to you in the studio, guys. <laughs> Thanks, Tony. <laughs> so uh, we'll, I'll put a link in the show notes for those of you listening to the audio podcast. Uh, that is a video of Aviator Tony um, trying to, I don't know, emulate Miami Rick uh, and his uh, uh, amazing ironing skills. But it looks like... Aviator Tony has a he's got it, pretty yeah. good uh, technique and style. Not a lot of steam coming out of that iron. I'm no. beginning to be suspicious. As a dry ironing um, aficionado, perhaps, yeah. and maybe not even and, on uh, or plugged we're, in. We're more used to extreme ironing skills. On oh, this show. that's true. That is true. Um, and I think Captain Nick um, is winning the race for extreme ironing <laughs> as far as APG crew members are concerned. I mean, riding backwards on that motorcycle and ironing that was, was just something. something I've uh, yeah, never Well, that seen. took some doing. Yes, <laughs> Quite a trick. Okay. Uh, number 15. Uh, this is feedback from Dave from Greensboro, North Carolina, I'm assuming. Um, I see RVs, R, I see, I see RVs in dealers as I drive in the Southeast. Seems like plenty to choose from. What makes Jeff's RV unique? I think he's talking about the one that I've put on order back in oh. April of 2021. He said, what features, uh, did he want that pushed him to ordering one? Does it have a yoke engines on each side, eyebrow windows, rear stairs, steam gauges, uh, none of that actually, uh, Dave, uh, since this will be the mobile recording studio, listeners might be curious. Okay. So I've, I've mentioned that, uh, that's going to be my, the next chapter in my life after I, uh, retire from airline flying, my next equipment is going to be the, um, unity, uh, the, uh, leisure travel vans unity. You go ahead and put the first one up there, Liz. It might be easier for me just to tell you that because of what I'm working with here. Um, so that is uh, a uh, Class C motorhome, at least here in the U.S. Uh, this company markets this as a Class B+, plus, uh, but it's actually a Class C as far what as insurance. What body is it on, Jeff? I'm sorry? What body? Is, oh, what frame? it is uh, built upon a Mercedes-Benz Sprinter cutout chassis so the very front of the of the uh, motorhome here that we're looking at the uh, cockpit area of the van is 100 um, percent mercedes and then the drivetrain all the way back to the rear dual wheels um, is all mercedes but the box that you see coming up from the roof of the cab and then extending all the way back to the back and that whole what they call the box 
uh, is built by um, a company in Manitoba, Winkler, Manitoba, Canada. Winkler, yep. Uh, called uh, Leisure Travel Vans. And this particular model is the unit. They, they also make another line um, that is based on the Ford Transit van. But this is the, a little bit bigger one. And it has greater towing capacity, 5,000 pounds. And uh, so go to the next one. Just shows a little bit different angle of the thing. And this is the, uh, the paint scheme that I've ordered uh, for my van, which hopefully I'll get before the end of the year. Uh, continue with the next one, please. And uh, that's the other side, the driver's side. It does have a slide out on that side. Um, and I'll show the floor plan here in a moment where you can see where the slide out comes out. Uh, advance to the next one, Liz. Uh, that's the front view of the uh, APG Mobile Studio. And then continue. And uh, here is an interior shot. I've ordered the darker um, wood uh, option. Uh, Liz doesn't like that, but uh, I like the... Um, the light, uh, the contrast afraid. of this uh, kind of uh, scheme, and there's the uh, the the dinette there on the right, the little galley area on the left, and the back is the uh, queen size corner bed. There's a bathroom back there as well. Go ahead and show the overhead view of the floor plan, and uh, there you can see the dining area dinette with the slide out. Slide out does not have to be pushed out, but it's nice. Gives you a little bit more room. A full uh, dry shower, and that sounds weird to say, but what that means is there's not a toilet inside of the shower. That would be kind of a wet shower, uh, but there's a separate toilet, separate shower, a little dentist's sink. You know, it's a very tiny little sink there for brushing your teeth and shaving and that kind of thing. And as I mentioned, the galley area, a couple TVs in there. A, uh, and the front seats swivel front seats around, right? swivel around, uh, face the interior of the motorhome so that becomes you know seating uh as well and uh, very comfortable seats by the way and um yeah that's it that's my motorhome now um dave was wondering well okay you can get these things from winnebago and thor and jayco and tiffin and all these different companies make a, a kind of a similar style of class c uh, motorhome and the reason why i went with this i did a lot of research on this this company has a reputation of being just the highest quality of any of the manufacturers out there. They're a very well, small Canadian. company. They only, well, they're Canadian, of course. Well, you just got to expect, you know, a higher quality, right? Yeah. Uh, Liz is an example of that. Um, <laughs> and uh, they only, they, their output every year is, I think, less than a thousand um, units. units. So, you know, they don't, they, it's not a huge production line. They spend a lot of time putting these things together. And the, as I said, they just have a, a very uh, strong reputation for being the highest quality uh, examples of this size, a small motorhome out there. And uh, the, the people that have purchased these and have driven these over the years have nothing but good things to say about them. They're, they're really well put together. And, you know, that's important. I, I'm spending a lot of money on this. And I want to make sure that I'm getting, you know, good value for my money and not something that I'm going to have to worry about getting fixed all the time and rattling apart because, you know, you have to kind of consider that this is my home, home on wheels, and it's going to be um, experiencing a low level earthquake constantly when I'm driving the thing. So it's got to be put together well. And uh, 
They, even you're, before, you're that good a driver, Jeff. Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe huge earthquakes <laughs> when I run into something. Hopefully, I won't do that. And my biggest fear is that I'm going to be driving this thing and forget about how tall it is, you know, and just like drive right into ah. something. But hopefully, I won't. Or probably more likely, I've always the the only time I've really bent metal or sheet metal or fiberglass in this case uh, is backing up. So I have to be especially careful when I'm backing up. You have up. cameras. Uh, it does have it does have a backup uh, camera back right. there. Yes, Liz. You going to show Dean a little? Um, yeah, let me show you a little bit of Dean. Dean is like the one of the higher ups in the company. He's kind of their PR guy, and uh, everybody loves Dean, especially Liz. Liz loves Dean. Yeah, I love um, Dean. So here, let me add this to the stream. All right. So. Hey, Dean from Leisure Travel Vans. Today we're going to have a look at the 2020 Unity Corner Bed. It's been exactly 10 years that we brought out this beautiful Unity Motorhome CB model corner bed. This is beautiful. Obviously a little bit different paint scheme. The wood in this one is a little bit darker than what I'm getting. They've lightened it up a little bit. Um, and here's a little bit of the interior. Welcome inside the 2020 Unity Corner Bed. If you're looking for a small motorhome with lots of exterior storage and lots of interior storage, the Unity Corner Bed is for you. Look how much room we have inside this motorhome. Big galley, two TVs. You can sleep up to four people. You can have seat belts up to four people. But guess what? It has a slide out. It's expandable. Now look at the space we have. This is incredible. And you are too, Dean. Thank you. We That's just you, a little. He's quite unique, isn't it? I hear he's only four foot tall. Is that right? <laughs> well, he's, <laughs> he's six foot. Uh, he's like your height. Yeah. Wow. He's tall tall he's man. Tall. Okay. Yeah. Well, that, that's a lot of space then. Yeah. Um, it's it's funny. He um, they they he shows that um, the that dinette area makes into a bed. And what's funny when you watch the uh, that that was a 2020 model, the latest uh, they have the 2022 or 2023 video, uh, but I just wanted to show you this one because of the darker colors. Um, but he uh, makes the dinette into a bed, which it does make into a bed, but it's for shorter people. Um, like you know, Nick, if you ever join me on a an adventure over here in the states in my motorhome, uh, you're going to have to sleep in the back. Uh, queen size bed because you're not going to fit in that little dinette bed because in the video it's funny because when you watch him actually lie down on this um, dinette made fit. into a bed he you don't really ever see him stretching out completely his, <laughs> his knees are kind of you know in the air still you know it's like he's uh yeah he's he's a tall guy anyway going to be great Jeff well, sounds so, amazing even before the um, pandemic there was a waiting list for this. Um, for this van and from this company. And, uh, since the pandemic that just increased the amount of weight. And initially when I signed the contract back, back in April of 2021, it was, 15, I think it was 12 to 15 months. And that would have been the end of, uh, last summer. And then they pushed it. The latest one was August. I mean, uh, April this month. Um, and then uh, just a few weeks ago, I talked to my sales agent and the, he said, eh, probably going to be more like, October, November of this year. I went, well, as long as it happens sometime before I retire, because this is where I'm going to be living for the rest of my life. So yeah, I'm going to be doing full-time living in this motorhome in the mobile APG studio. And I'm really, really looking forward to it. What'd you say, Liz? Using your Starlink. Using my Starlink and other ways to get internet. And, yeah, are they uh, going to fit that for you in there somewhere? No, 
there you now the uh, Starlink does make a uh, a version of the antenna that you can actually flat mount. Um, but I think I'm going to stick with the the version that I have that has like the little uh, tripod, um, actually not quad pod uh, mounting system, so that I can move it away from the uh, motorhome if I need to, because that uh, Starlink system really needs a good uh, shot of a great span of space Sky. without um, obstacles and like trees and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah. So I'll probably just stick with what I have and, and just keep it somewhere in one of the storage compartments and then pull it out when I need it. That's what she said. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So, hey, if you're a listener here in the U.S. and I'm out there, you know, I'm retired and I'm out there living in this motorhome and you want me, uh, you want to visit from the airline pilot guy uh, and uh, in, in the mobile studio, uh, please, you know, let me know. And I'd be very happy to uh, park in your driveway or in the street, just like, uh, what is it, National Lampoon's um, Christmas yeah. uh, vacation Christmas, yep. uh, movie where, uh, was it Cousin Eddie uh, yep. visits in his uh, RV? And uh, dumps his black tank in the uh, in the street in the sewer in the street. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not going to do that. I won't do that. I promise. Uh, what were, what were you saying, Liz? As long as they've got laundry facilities, you'll be oh, dropping. Oh, laundry by. facilities. Yeah, this doesn't have a washer and dryer built into so it. So you'll be you'll be dropping. I'll by. be uh, I'll be dropping my you'll laundry. You'll be beating your clothes on rocks in the river. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> or probably more likely just throwing them away and buying new ones, getting, picking them up and getting them delivered via Amazon. All right. So Dave, that's, that's my reason for choosing this motorhome. And, uh, as I said, I'm really, really looking forward to it. It'll be great. All right. I think, I think that's it. Let's just Jeff. wrap it up. What do you yeah, think? Wrap it and, up. um, I think that was a good length yeah. for the show. And, uh, of course that's what she said. And, I think now we can tell you a little bit about our website, airlinepilotguy.com. Yeah, and that's a place where you can find more information about our, um, our crew and our community. And uh, uh, Tiffany, our librarian, uh, manages uh, that if you're into reading uh, mostly aviation-related books. Um, merchandise. You can um, watch the videos from YouTube or at least get a link to plane tales. head over to uh, youtube.com slash airline pilot guy, a special plane tales page where Nick puts more pictures and information about the uh, particular installment of the plane tales. Didn't you just upload a bunch and of them? So I think, yeah, he's recently uh, uploaded a bunch of uh, past episodes and uh, let's see, calendar uh, that shows when we're planning on recording, recording the next yeah. show. And um, sometimes uh, there's information about my uh, upcoming trips. Although right now with the way I'm doing things, I, I really have no idea what my upcoming trip is going to be. You're clueless. I'm clue yeah, I am definitely clueless for sure. And... Uh, we're also on social media. And uh, Nick, if you'll do the honors. Absolutely. Honest. And uh, if you're a Facebook person, then uh, you can just search for Airline Pilot Guy, all one word. You'll find us there. And if you're a, uh, a new uh, Twitterer or even an old Twitterer and uh, you like the new, are you going to stay with it despite all the funny blue tick? mess we've got ourselves into uh, you can look for it at APG crew which is very similar to the uh, instas if you're a 
are there on Instagram, which is APG Crew, or one word. Very good. And Hello around. also on Slack. And again, I think that, uh, oh, I hear the shower in the background. Hey, Hillel, can you tell us about, about Slack? Where's he going to stay in your RV? Well, that's a good question, Nick. I'm not sure we've worked out the logistics <laughs> on that, uh, but I'm sure we'll think of something. Um, all right. Well, tell us about Slacks. Hello. Not Slacks, but Slack. <laughs> APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. Hanging up on, on Skype, On Slack, Jeff. we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thank you, Hillel. Appreciate it. What place is this? Where are we? How does this thing work? I think he's a little confused. He must have bumped his head or something. I don't know. Um, anyway, uh, so that is it. And we'd also like to thank our producer, Liz, for all the great work that she does, um, mostly behind the scenes. And uh, well done, That's the way I like it. Thanks, guys. We love you. Oops. Thank you there so much. Go. Oh, I hear the alarm going off. It must be time that for us to end the show. That was 10 minutes before the three-hour mark, so ah, perfect. Okay. Good. Let's see. Where's the button? Here we go. And turn yeah, the that's enough. Off. And oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, I guess that's going to be it. So thank you to our live audience, our live chat room, for showing up every week and helping us uh, with uh, some of the information on the show and also entertaining us along the way. And um, yeah, that's about it. So we're going to wish you clear skies and limited visibility and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Bye, everybody. Ta-ta for now. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day. Such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America oh, Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy fall I got no friends Cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, I